Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I am the special temporary primary host of the show. And today I'm joined by Greg Knuckles. He is currently the permanent guest co-host for the time being. Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I am doing well because I unlocked a new experience in life. Do tell. Uh, I was in San Jose, California. I was on a podcast, which by the way, we really need to upgrade our podcast situation. I know you were on Dave Tate's podcast. I was uh, a guest on Mind Pump. Uh, I walk in. There's a team of people diligently working around the clock to make that operation work. The studio is all like soundproofed with all these different cameras and microphones. There was a producer there uh, rather than the on-air talent producing it as we go. They, they got a real, uh, a real operation going on. Uh, it leaves a lot to be desired when I come back home. Well, uh, as the person who heads up the podcast, uh, I would say that ball is firmly in your court. Yeah, I, I saw a bunch of uh, Twitter threads about um, CGI companies who are really upset with their working conditions. I think we should just lean into it and do like a half CGI situation and really boost the uh, the quality. I think that would be fun. That'd be cool. Yeah. Like really make it a multimedia yeah. production. But anyway, not the point of the story. Uh, I was in San Jose and I experienced my first like substantial earthquake. Like I think when I was younger, at some point in my life, I heard that an earthquake occurred. I don't remember if it was in Ohio or North Carolina. Um but, you know, there it was like, hey, an earthquake happened, but you probably didn't feel it. And I was like, yeah, I didn't feel it. Yeah. So I was sitting there in San Jose and I mean, like stuff on the walls was like shaking and moving. And I was like, whoa, this is for real. So there is a, a magnitude 5.1 earthquake uh, that happened about 12 miles away was the epicenter. Uh, so like, you know, a 5.1 isn't like a crazy, crazy magnitude. But I was looking up stuff um, and apparently values above five are pretty pretty rare even in the bay area and in california obviously california is known for having a lot of earthquakes just because of the the tectonic plates over there uh but apparently in the last 30 years in the bay area they've only had uh like three or four earthquakes that are that are of that magnitude uh so even for the locals it, it was a bit of a a bit of an atypical experience um and uh, apparently, just for, for frame of reference, I like to kind of put it into units that people kind of know better than just like a Richter scale. So about 20 million kilograms of dynamite. If you've ever felt uh, that type of uh, energy release, that, that's about what we were talking about in terms of the seismic activity. Yeah, so I uh, I, I don't know what, what 20 million kilograms of dynamite uh, sounds like or feels like, but I do have some secondhand experience with dynamite. Um not going to share. Yeah, don't admit to any crimes. I'm uh, not going to share too many details here because I I don't want to accidentally get anyone in trouble. But uh, someone I know um used to be able to legally get their hands on dynamite, and they had a large tree on their property that they that they wanted taken down, and like we're we're talking about like a huge tree, absolutely enormous, the type of deal that. Uh, is certainly not amenable to just like a chainsaw. Yeah. Um. So it it would be the type of deal where, you know, you need to get some some forestry folks out. Um. 
it would have been quite expensive, would have been a, a whole rigmarole. Um, and, you know, he, he wasn't taking it down just for fun. Like the, the tree was starting to like decay, die, whatever. Like it, it needed to come down. And so uh, he looked at his options and determined that it would be far cheaper and more efficient to simply drill a hole in the tree, stick some dynamite in and blow it up. Um, so that's what he did. And I was like kind of a long way away. Like, you know, not like a hundred yards. We're talking on the scale of like, um, maybe like, maybe like a mile away. You ever mm -hmm. take when it happened? Didn't know it was going to happen. And like, I mean, it was, it was loud enough that it was still quite scary. Yeah. Um, and, and apparently if you were within like hundred, 200 yards, there was a notable shock wave, like a lot of energy release. Um, and I mean, my first thought is, is growing up in kind of redneck country. I thought someone had gotten their hands on, um, like a, one of those like barely legal firearms. That's like basically small, small artillery. Like yeah, it, it was yeah. pretty serious. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was just like a stick or two. So I imagine 20 million kilograms would be, would be really, really something. Yeah. Yeah. So it was my first earthquake experience. Uh, you know, that was on the bucket list. So I can check that off. Uh, the earthquake itself, I wasn't really worried. Um, but like, so the earthquake starts happening. I'm like, oh, wow, it's really happening. Uh, and I'm, you know, kind of just observing. And then I remembered that tsunamis exist. And I was like, where's the epicenter for this? Um, but yeah, so fortunately, despite the high magnitude, it doesn't look like there was a ton of like damage or injuries or anything like that. That's good. But but uh, it got me thinking about um, uh, natural disasters. And there was one thing in my past that I kind of go back to. And it happened when I was a kid. So I think I was, I guess I was like eight-ish years old. Mm -hmm. And I remembered as a kid, there was like a big uh, tornado in my town. And I was like, I wonder if I can find any information about that just to like understand the scale of what happened. Because when you're a kid, you blow everything out of proportion. Your hometown is the whole world in, in your eyes. So, yeah. so I was like, I wondered like if there's a way to kind of contextualize uh, how big that was. So I, I Google it thinking maybe I'll find like a local newspaper story that's like archived on the internet. There was a Wikipedia page for the, for the, <laughs> the tornado that, that hit my hometown. When I was like eight. So like, if anything, I find, I found out that I was underselling it in my childlike mind. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I looked it up. And when I was a kid, there was uh, like a, a storm system that came through that spit out like, 54 confirmed tornadoes and i think three of them were f4 on the tornado scale which i believe goes up to f5 uh but yeah i mean there were like hundreds and hundreds of buildings just destroyed uh, i think the damage estimate here is 82 million uh for which for for a little like not little but you know with tornadoes you don't necessarily anticipate such widespread damage with that time a lot of times like if you live in an area that doesn't have a lot of tornadoes, a normal tornado situation, at least in my experience growing up in Ohio, is the storm conditions are right for a tornado to occur. And yeah. so everyone says, hey, look out, there might be a tornado. What do you do with that information? Frankly, not much. Yeah. Because it's just like a wall of clouds and it's like one might pop up somewhere. We don't know. Maybe it'll touch the ground. Who knows? And it'll last for like a little bit of time and then just disappear. Mm -hmm. Um. But but anyway, uh, yeah, so 
I n- normally, you know, it'll just kind of drop down. You'll see the funnel cloud, you know, something will happen and it'll take out like a few houses on a street or something or like, you know, m- really significantly damaged, just a small little area, broadly speaking. Um, but every now and then you get these systems that kick out a ton of tornadoes and some of them are huge and they'll really, really cut through a town. So, uh, yeah, looking back at it, I, I kind of didn't understand the scope of the natural disaster one because i was a child and two because i slept through the entire thing nice i just woke up and and my parents were like yeah you don't have school and i was like why and they're like look around (laughs) like (laughs) take a hint man like like there's like 200 buildings damaged here but uh so greg uh natural disasters what what do you got for us have you been through any uh yeah the the biggest one it it was also an instance of sleeping through something um my wife and i were on an anniversary trip when uh when hurricane matthew was coming through a, a few years back and you know we we could have rescheduled it but we had already had to reschedule it uh because when we were trying to go for our actual anniversary uh got in an accident, totaled the car, ended up uh, not taking the anniversary trip then, so we had to reschedule it. We ended up rescheduling it during hurricane season, thinking like, eh, you know, North Carolina generally gets hit by about one hurricane per year, so what are the odds it'll be that weekend? Anyway, turned out to be that weekend, um, but we we said, you know what, we, we, have, a, we have a summer anniversary um, already rescheduling for like October, It's not really an anniversary trip if we reschedule for like February. And also it was kind of the the furthest extent of like the beach actually being like a beach vacation. You know, like once you start getting into November and it's cold, it's a whole different vibe. So we said, whatever, like we're still going to do it. Uh, And it looked like it looked like at the time the forecasts were saying that Matthew was going to arc back out into the ocean. But it ended up just going right over us like the the eye of the storm passed over us. Thankfully, it it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, I believe Matthew peaked as a Category 5 hurricane, but it was, I believe it was like a weak Category 1 when Mm -hmm. it went over us. Wow. Um, But yeah, I I slept through the whole thing. We were in the kind of like back half of the storm wall when I woke up the next morning, and the wind was so loud, it sounded like someone was running like a lawnmower right outside our window. I was like, "What what is going on? It's ridiculous. We look outside and it's just, you know, like it was kind of the outside part of the storm wall. So I, I think it was like 50, 60 mile an hour winds. Um, and, you know, it, it, there there wasn't really any danger, but certainly if there had been, it was it was passed by that point. So it actually ended up being being a very cool and fun experience because for the first the first maybe like two hours of that morning when we were still like in the in the last little remnants of the storm wall, um, like, it, it was just, like, pretty consistent 50 to 70 mile an hour wind, which is, I mean, it's it's whipping, but, like, it's not going to take you off your feet. Um, so we just went outside and hopped in a hot tub, and it, it felt like just chilling through the apocalypse. Like, you look around, the sky looks insane, uh, we could see the ocean, some of some of the most ludicrous waves oh, uh, yeah, we could sure. see. Sometimes when the wind shifted direction... Uh, the water would like blow out and the waves would break into the ocean instead of into the shore, which that was a crazy sight to see. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we're, we're just sitting in the hot tub, just kind of observing everything. 
and uh yeah that that was fun um like uh, it, it was i would say like two percent scary and 98 percent just generally interesting uh then for something that was um quite a bit scarier i would say is i i went to college in arkansas which is also tornado alley and we had um like it, every year we were there we had multiple tornado warnings i think yeah. only one tornado ever actually touched down on campus but it it just kind of like just plopped down on the quad for a second destroyed one of the oldest and most beautiful trees you'll ever see and then just left like it, yeah. it was as if it had a grudge against that particular tree yeah and then just moved on with life yeah and that, that's what i was getting at though is like when that happens there's like they'll be they'll put out a warning for like seven counties yeah, and yeah. say like hey this might happen where we don't know yes. and yeah it just drops down and does it but as as kind of like a, a secondhand thing related to that so there you know there, there were tornadoes all the time in that area and my first semester there, um, so for, for people listening who don't know, I went to a Christian school, um, and so we had chapel every day, which, uh, as not a morning person, wasn't really my preference, but, you know, it, it was what it was. And during, um, like, during my first semester there, uh, there had been a hurricane that had torn through a community, like, you know, pretty close, like, j just a little bit down the road. And it had completely destroyed the elementary school. And so one of the first chapels of that semester, they they were kind of taking up a collection, like raising money to help them rebuild the elementary school. Like very, very nice, good thing to do. So raised money. They rebuilt the school. A couple years later, uh, guess what? Another, another band of tornadoes came through, destroyed the school again. This was like junior year, I believe. And so once again, uh, we have a chapel. Uh, and I'm pretty sure no one was like, I, I don't think like kids were killed in the school. The, these were tornadoes that came through at night, destroyed the school when, when people weren't in it as, as far as I remember. Um, but yeah, so another chapel, uh, raise some more money to help rebuild the school. Um, you know, all good. They rebuild the school. And then I want to say... Well, that's good, though, because, I mean, if a tornado hit a school twice, you know it'll, it's not going to get hit a third. Like, there's no chance that it would get hit a third time. Well, I think you see where this is going. Uh, like, two years after I graduated, thereabouts, um, like, I, I was still on the Harding mailing list, and we got an email saying, what do you know? Another, more tornadoes came through, uh, and would you believe it? They destroyed that same elementary school again. Um, so, you know, same general process. And on one hand, that's, you know, that's obviously sad. Like it's, it's disrupting those kids learning. Um, also it's obviously very nice that every time this happens, uh, community pulls together, raises money. Um, it's also nice that, that Harding was willing to chip in because like Harding itself is a quite well endowed school, um, and a lot of the surrounding area is very poor, like very constrained, like local budgets and whatnot. So it's it's nice that that they were willing to help out. But there there is just like a bit of of dark humor and irony there where it's like, you know, it's it's God's will that we should try to collect money to help rebuild this school. But maybe maybe it's actually God's will that there not be an elementary school in that exact spot. <laughs> right. Um 
who who knows who knows yeah uh but yeah so that that was that was kind of a a secondhand natural disaster type experience yeah and, and i should clarify since people actually listen to this uh if you are in a place that gets a tornado warning and you don't know how tornadoes work uh you should ideally get to like a basement or a cellar you want to be underground and if you can't be underground you want to be on the lowest floor possible and get to a building with really firm walls inside the the structure so yeah. usually like People will go to a bathroom that's centrally located in their home because the walls have plumbing running through them that kind of reinforces it. Uh, so I, I don't want to be the person who convinces people to take no action when they get a tornado warning. And um, that's that's good information for us to have as well. You you uh, informed me of this recently. Apparently, Tornado Alley is moving east. It is. So we we thought we were getting out of it, but... You know, 20, 30 years from now, we might we might be we might be able to put uh, our our prior tornado experience uh, to good use. We might. Uh, hopefully not. But we might. Uh, OK, so we have uh, we have to sell out really quick here. Uh, that's really the purpose here. We just want to show these various products and opportunities. So if you like rate, uh, if you like the show, you can support it many different ways. Uh, number one, you could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you access the show. Uh, if you like free weekly newsletters with research updates, everybody likes that. Uh, get on the email newsletter. Uh, sign up for our email list. It goes out every week. Uh, nice, fresh update with new training and nutrition-related uh, research updates. You can do that at strongerbyscience.com newsletter. If you're looking for one-on-one -on -one online coaching, you can find that at strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want a discount on your supplements, you can get them at bulksupplements.com using the discount code SBSPOD for a 5% discount. Uh, if you like the kind of content we do, you can get more of it every single month in the Mass Research Review. We publish that the first of the month every month along with uh, Dr. Mike Zordos and Dr. Eric Helms. And uh, if you're looking for a food logger or nutrition app that does have built-in coaching functionality to kind of help you decide what your macro target should be, uh, check out Macro Factor. We co-developed it, and you can do uh, a free trial so you can take it for a spin and see if you like it before you make a financial commitment. Uh, and we do have two great segments today, but first we need to fully complete the process of selling out. We're going to take a quick timeout for an obscene profit break. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. 
That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard for sports nutrition scope of practice for its members. This ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the Sports Nutrition Association. If you already meet their minimum education requirements, you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today. Uh, If you don't meet those education requirements yet, you can enroll in the certificate program in Applied Sports Nutrition. That allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support. All right. So, Greg, moving on to our segments here, what do you have for us today? Yeah. So, um, I have a... Mm, how, how to describe this segment. So, I used to do a little segment at the top of the show called Road to the Stage, mm-hmm. uh, documenting my, my weight loss uh, progress. And I recently uh, ticked off a, a nice little milestone. Um, I am officially below 220 for the first time since August of 2012, I believe. So that's that's good. Yeah. Feeling good. Awesome. Uh, quite happy about that. And so I wanted to do... Uh, a, a little segment talking a little bit about some of the things that have helped me out along the way uh, with with that process because you know I I've uh, quite quite publicly been a a larger man in the public eye for uh, for I mean o- over a decade at this point um, and have quite publicly struggled with weight loss in the past um, and a. A, a good chunk of my uh, ongoing success this time around has been in, you know, like I, so one of the one of the uh, f- frequent things that I would see said about me on the internet previously was, you know, like why should why should I listen to anything that this person has to say about nutrition if clearly just looking at them they don't know anything about it like don't know what they're doing which like honestly i get it you know it it is what it is um but a, a lot of the 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 journey to where i'm at now i think a lot of what has helped me is not so much like learning new things about weight loss it has been unlearning things that i used to think were like absolutely necessary and mandatory um, that in a lot of contexts are probably good advice, but that when applied without care and context can, I think, sometimes do more harm than good. So I I wanted to talk about that a little bit uh, in this segment. So um, yeah, the the title I have for it is Popular Weight Loss Advice That May Do More Harm Than Good. 
And, and just to add a little nuance to that, uh, you know, things that that are probably in a vacuum, pretty decent advice, but, um, you know, can that have a non-trivial risk of of leading people astray when applied without context. And so to be clear, I'm not talking about like scams or like fad diets or, or anything like that. Um, You're not going to do a whole segment on the grapefruit diet here? Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm talking about things that are uh, the, the sort of advice you would hear from generally well-informed and well-intentioned evidence-based fitness professionals that, like I said, in a vacuum might be very good advice, but that I think are sometimes presented as blanket must-haves that might might not always be the case. So I, I, I think um, I, I think what I'm getting at will become more clear as I get into this segment. Um, and also, uh, so just to just to kind of start out with some some context and background for where a lot of the dietary advice in the like so-called evidence-based fitness community originates. And I mean, really just the broader fitness community in general. Um, a lot of it kind of uh, originates with or gets popular with bodybuilders and physique athletes first and foremost, uh, which, which kind of makes sense. Um, so for, for people who are bodybuilders, physique athletes, like a huge part of the sport is pursuing what, uh, what Adam Fisher, our, our buddy Adam, uh, does support for both Stronger by Science and Macro Factor. Great dude, got absolutely diced in this past year. Uh, but what he terms exotic levels of leanness. Um, and, you know, if, if that is your pursuit, if a, if a big part of your sport is just getting as peeled as you can possibly get, it makes sense that you're more likely than the average person to just like stew on the approaches that might be best suited to accomplishing that that pursuit. Because, you know, that's that's a huge part of your sport. Uh, and when you're trying to reach an extreme goal, uh, the details simply matter more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I also think it makes a lot of sense for for just kind of the general fitness public to look towards bodybuilders, physique athletes, bodybuilding coaches, physique coaches for general nutrition advice. Um, you know, it, even if... Like there, there are reasons you might not want to, but just kind of like on a very basic level, it makes sense because, you know, if, if you're like, that is a population of people who reliably and predictably achieve extreme levels of leanness. Like that's a huge part of what they do. And it's, it's pretty rare for successful bodybuilders to sign up for a show and just show up completely out of shape. You know, they're, they're able to pick months in advance, hey, I'm doing a show on this date, and I need to be incredibly lean by that date, and then they get there. And I think that that's extremely appealing for a lot of people because, you know, the, the thought process is if they can so reliably and predictably get that lean, and I have, you know, I, I'm only trying to get down to 15% body fat or, like, for... um for the women listening, like, you know, 25% body fat, something like that. Like if, if they can get that peeled, then their advice certainly has to be good enough to help me get to where I'm trying to go 
on a reasonable timeline, you know? Yeah, and, and we see that with other domains as well, uh, where like you'll you'll see uh, people who are like trying to get tips for running their like one person sole proprietorship type business. And they're like, I'm going to read a book by someone who runs a Fortune 500 company with like 70,000 employees about yeah. how to manage a company. And it's like, well, yeah, like those strategies... Are, certainly can help you manage an enormous company, but you might not necessarily need that for your sole proprietorship or for like a tiny business that has like two contractors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. So um, yeah, a, a point that I'm going to attempt to make in this segment is that some of that advice uh, might be unnecessary at best or counterproductive at worst for people who aren't pursuing as extreme of, of goals. And just as one final like little bit of framing before diving in, um, the context of this segment is I'm talking about people who are trying to lose a significant amount of weight and keep it off. So I'm not necessarily talking about advice for people who are going into a weight loss attempt um, with the intention of kind of doing cyclical bulks and cuts. You know, you're going to lose 20 pounds, trying to get super lean, and then you're going to regain 20, 30 pounds in the off season to try to build more muscle and then get lean again. You know, like a, uh, w which I'll note, like that's also like a kind of common piece of advice. A lot of people give, um, which also just directly comes from bodybuilders, which I, I don't know if that's necessary for everyone, but th people with those sort of, of, uh, who are intending to take a cyclical approach to weight management, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about folks who are trying to lose, you know, 10, 20, 30 pounds and keep it off in perpetuity. Yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, with, with that out of the way, let's dive in. Um, so ultimately, uh, I, I think a successful weight loss diet kind of for that purpose, lose the weight and keep it off, uh, is going to need to have three characteristics. Uh, one, you need to be able to stick to it uh, to help you stay in an energy deficit for a long enough period of time to lose the weight you want to lose. Number two, uh, it needs to support other goals you have beyond weight loss per se. You know, like if you're working out, you need to have energy for working out, trying to maintain muscle. You need to be able to maintain muscle, needs to be able to gel with your social life to some extent, um, all of those things. And, and number three, and... Perhaps most importantly, certainly very important, uh, whatever you do needs to set you up for success at the end of your diet. Because again, you're trying to lose the weight and keep it off. So it's not just, you know, trying to sprint to lose 20 pounds and then you just find yourself on kind of the yo-yo diet roller coaster, lose the weight, gain it all back. You want to be able to, to build the necessary skills and lifestyle around what you're doing that when you lose weight, you'll you'll be able to maintain that and keep it off. So the the first uh, idea I would like to talk about, the first piece of popular advice that I think often uh, might, might be okay advice in a vacuum, but that often does more harm than good when just given as blanket advice to everyone, is uh, the pursuit of rigid macro counting. And I'm not going to get super in-depth on this because I know, I know you've talked about this on the podcast uh, Quite a bit before, but uh, I'll note on the front end that a rigid approach to macro counting uh, makes a lot of sense for bodybuilders in in a lot of contexts. So first, the the general rigidity of it, um, you know, having 
uh, carb, fat, protein targets that you try to stick to every day with minimal or ideally no deviations from them. That makes a lot of sense when you're on a strict timeline where you need to get super diced for a show on a particular date. You know, yeah. um, there, there is an end date for that diet and you better get there. Otherwise, there's not much room for error. And, and you just kind of make a fool of yourself on stage, um, which, you know, that's that's not what you're doing, you know. So yeah. uh, the the rigidity, uh, like a, a rigid approach to macro counting um, can certainly make a lot of sense for bodybuilders from from that perspective. Uh, and also just the approach to macro counting in particular. So, you know, not just not just trying to keep an eye on, say, total calorie and protein intake but really trying to keep an eye on each particular macronutrient, having carb targets for the day, fat targets for the day, and really not trying to, to deviate from them much at all. Um, I also think that makes a lot of sense for specifically bodybuilders trying to get super lean. So protein, obvious, that's going to help support uh, muscle maintenance or you know maybe even gaining a little bit at the start of the diet. Need to have plenty of protein. Uh, fat makes sense, like having... Having a, a strict fat target, fat's important for absorbing fat-soluble vitamins, um, maintaining hormone production, etc. Carb intake, also very important. You need energy to fuel your training. And the thing is, if someone is trying to get, if someone is pursuing exotic levels of leanness, you find yourself with very little margin for error at the end of a diet. You know, like, you're not going to be eating as much of anything as you would like to, but you you might be dealing with something where if you don't hit like your fat target is really low your carb target is really low and if you eat 10 more grams of fat than you had allotted for yourself well now carb intake is so low that your already shitty training session is just going to be even shittier you know or yeah. what's that saying is it robbing peter to pay paul exactly yeah. yeah when when you're dieting in a bodybuilding context toward the end Every time you add one macro, you're like, I'm paying for this somewhere else. Yeah, 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 exactly. And the and the inverse as well. Like if you, you know, if you eat 30 more grams of carbs than you were supposed to, and that comes out of your fat budget, you might be looking at weeks at a time where you're you're really consuming such low fat intake that it's quite unhealthy. Yeah. You know, so the the really really um, strict. Uh, approach to macro counting and really focusing on each macro makes a lot of sense in that context. Um, but I think that that can that can be counterproductive for a lot of folks who have other goals beyond just getting diced for for a bodybuilding show. First, it's just generally unnecessary. Um, like our our general perspective is that for most people, just tracking protein and total calories is fine. Most people's hedonic preferences will wind them up with enough fat intake to support fat-soluble vitamin absorption, hormone production, enough carb intake to support training, um, and you know you're you're not going to be uh, finding yourself in the sort of situation where everything is just so low that those trade-offs get uh, really extreme. Uh, also, like the the uh, idea of really rigid macro counting we like you've talked about this a lot before the difference between rigid and flexible cognitive restraint 
A lot of people refer to all macro counting approaches as flexible dieting because you have a lot of flexibility with food choice. But if you're, um, you know, if you're pursuing three numbers that you have to hit every day with very, very little room for error, um, that that just gives you a lot more opportunities to fail and lose motivation. Um, and uh, it, an in-depth discussion of maintaining motivation over the course of an entire diet, that's probably a little bit outside the, the scope of this segment. Um, but just in kind of broad terms, if you're setting goals for yourself that are challenging but achievable and you're hitting them consistently, that can help build and sustain motivation as you move forward. Um, but, you know, if, if you're putting yourself in a situation where you're setting goals and targets for yourself that aren't strictly necessary for the pursuit of your goal, and you're giving yourself more opportunities to at least perceive what you're doing to to be failing, you know, if, if you're saying, man, I got to get within 10 grams of my carb target and 5 grams of my fat target every day, while maintaining some semblance of a normal life, that's going to be quite challenging. Uh, a lot of people who aren't, you know, pursuing a diet with the single-minded focus of a bodybuilder, like a, a lot of times you're, you're just not going to do that. And then you feel like a failure. And then you might hit the kind of fuck it point and say, ah, well, I already went 10 grams over on my fat. Today's already a failure. So I'm just going to eat everything in sight because I, I already failed today. Like that's that's the situation you can find yourself with with really rigid cognitive restraint, and it's just not necessary. Yeah, I think the term you used there was the fuck it point. Yeah. Yeah. In the research, I've seen the what the hell effect, and I, I'm I'm wondering why they went with, with that one instead of your preferred version. I mean, it it the similar connotations, I would say. <laughs> no, it's exactly the same thing, but one is more printable in textbooks. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, uh, f finally, like... It, uh, like, so with with kind of the framing device, three things for an important diet, you can stick to it, supports your goals beyond weight loss per se, and sets you up for success at the end of, of your diet. I don't know that uh, losing weight with really, really rigid macro counting necessarily does a great job of setting people up for success at the end of their diet, because it does take uh, really rigid cognitive restraint to do it. And most people don't want to do that forever. You know, like if if you're able to pull it off for 16 weeks, six months, whatever, um, you might very successfully lose the weight that you're trying to lose. But most people don't want to come within five grams of a protein, carbon, fat target every single day for the rest of their life. You know, yeah. so if, if that does sound like something that you would enthusiastically do for the next 50 years, then go for it. But if you look at that and say, damn, I really don't want to do that every day for the next 50 years, then this might be an approach to weight loss that that ultimately isn't setting you up for long-term success because it's not, uh, like the, the skills you're developing to pursue that type of diet aren't the skills you would need to then be able to kind of transition to a more normal way of eating and, and ultimately keep the weight off. Yeah, if I could add a couple things here. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh, number one, you mentioned that a really in-depth discussion of like uh, meeting goals and supporting or facilitating uh, motivation, sustained motivation mm -hmm. is a little bit outside the scope of this particular segment. 
There's two articles I would direct readers to. Uh, one is strongerbyscience.com slash goal setting. Mm-hmm. And the other is macrofactorapp.com slash cheat meals. Uh, both of those go into more detail about uh, sustaining motivation, uh, motivational collapse in the context of overeating and rigid dietary targets and things like that. Uh, so I would recommend that for further detail if anyone's interested. Uh, another thing, I think a lot of people might be confused when they hear this and say, okay, well, I've looked at the literature and it says that for long-term weight loss success, uh, you know, some form of dietary tracking and just general monitoring practices Mm -hmm. seem to be correlated with success in the long run. And so, so people might be hearing this and saying, well, what gives if, if monitoring is, is facilitating long-term success, why would very precise monitoring be perhaps not the best approach? And ultimately, I think uh, if I could draw on an anecdote, Mm -hmm. uh, I was helping out with a study where that was a collaboration with a a weight loss clinic. And we would have, you know, basically participants would come back when they hit a certain marker, when, when they kind of hit the next milestone in their weight loss. And it was starting to become really clear the people that were like cruising through it and the people that were really struggling. And you know, as a researcher, you're in the room with them, right? You you have the opportunity to to chat, make some small talk, and kind of pick their brain a little bit. And one of the things that jumped out to me was the really successful people who were cruising through it and maintaining it long term, they were doing a lot of the basic monitoring practices that we talk about. They were keeping an eye on body weight and they were tracking consistently but not rigidly. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the big distinction that you're getting at here is you want to track consistently, but you don't want to be super rigid about hitting three exact numbers precisely for the rest of your life. And when I talk with these folks, what they seem to do, broadly speaking, is fall into a comfortable pattern where they're consistently checking in on body weight, uh, not hyper fixated on it, but just keeping an eye on it, you know, um, mm-hmm. And they are tracking their calories, uh, maybe tracking protein as well. This population wasn't doing a lot of lifting, so the protein was kind of secondary. Yeah. Um, But, you know, what would happen is if they started to see weight creeping up a little bit, then they would say, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I need to tighten up my tracking a little, you know, and, and get it from kind of cruise control into like, hey, it looks like things are starting to drift a little bit. I'm aware of that early because I've been monitoring body weight and now I can take my tracking precision from a seven out of 10 to an eight out of 10 or a nine out of 10. And for for most applications, you really don't have to crank into that absolute highest gear where you're precisely and rigidly tracking carbohydrate and fat and protein, unless you're trying to get to, to that term you've been using of exotically lean. Yeah, yeah. And and also I mean like unless there's uh unless there's a date at which you have to achieve a certain body weight or a certain physique or anything like that, um even just like adherence to the targets is more of a uh more of like a fuzzy concept instead of just like you have to hit the numbers dead on the head every day. So like, you know, as as an example, if if someone's trying to lose about a pound a week, give or take, um you know, that's that's going to come with an energy deficit of around 500 calories per day on average or so. 
And so ultimately, um, if you say need to lose exactly 20 pounds in 20 weeks to get to, you know, whatever physique you're trying to achieve for a bodybuilding show, then like, yeah, you need to achieve that deficit every single day or that cumulative deficit every single week to get where you're trying to go at the exact date you need to get there. If it, you know, if if it's more about long-term weight loss and hey, like what, you know, I'm going to get there eventually and then I'm going to try to stay here and maintain it for the next 20 years or whatever. Um, that's that's just unnecessary. You know, yeah. if, if there's a day or two a week where you just say, you know what? There's a lot of other things going on. I have a, a social event coming up. I just don't feel like being in a deficit today. You can just eat at your maintenance intake, like one or two days per week. For the week, you're still in a cumulative energy deficit. It's still going to be uh, moving you towards your goal. Maybe not at your intended rate, but it, it's still ultimately progress, you know? Or, yeah. um, like I, th- this is also something I see a lot just when when people discuss this uh, on the internet where, you know, maybe their daily calorie target, like e- even if they're not tracking macro super, super rigidly, their daily calorie target is like 1700 calories or something. They're trying to lose a pound a week. And they're like, ah, oh, man, like I, I hit 1800 calories today. I hit 1900 calories today. I feel like a failure. But it's like, dude, like that's still a a three four hundred calorie deficit. Like it's that is that is still a a directionally appropriate thing you did. And I think that if if folks were able to take a step back and you know adopt a mindset of flexible restraint instead of rigid restraint, that they would see that that is still a win. Like this was still a very good day. Um, you know, perhaps not the absolute optimal conceivable day given what I'm trying to do and the rate I'm trying to do it at but it's still good and and I think with the with the really really rigid restraint um you you find yourself in a situation where you end up reframing small wins into unqualified losses and that is that is not a recipe for success no I mean that that's a great example and it reminds me I, one time I was working with a client and and there was just stuff going on in life where really meticulous tracking and pushing the deficit hard just wasn't really in the cards for a stretch of time. And I could tell they were starting to get a little bit disappointed with some of the, you know, they're like, ah, I haven't been losing weight lately, but weight loss was the goal. And it, it was starting to kind of get internally framed mentally as failure. Mm-hmm. And my biggest thing was like, well, wait a minute, Let, let's take a step back we're like 17 kilograms below where we started. Yeah. Maintaining your weight 17 kilograms below where we started is an unqualified success. Yeah. You know, so like, even if you do run into those areas of friction, I know we're talking about a slightly different thing here in terms of time scales, but like, yeah, I mean, if you were shooting for a 600 calorie deficit and you hit a 250 calorie deficit, you're still in a deficit. You know, if, if you were hoping to lose, you know, three pounds this week well that's not a good example but you get the idea <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you set the goal of what the optimal target is but like if you're still directionally moving in the right place or way further along than where you started it is important to kind of take a step back and look at the broader the broader picture and say it's really hard to call this a failure yeah yeah, yeah. So, absolutely so um like i said i'm i'm talking about this because the excuse I'm using is that I, I recently hit that weight loss milestone. And so like for, for my experience with this diet and plenty of diets that had failed in the past, um, 
I, I did previously do what uh, I thought I was supposed to do. You know, I, I, um, I, I know a reasonable amount about nutrition. I could calculate like what my protein target should be. Um, you know, how many carbs I needed to support the training I was doing, the rest coming from fat. It was plenty of fat to support vitamin absorption, hormone production. I was like, okay, cool. Like I've got my numbers. I did all of this the right way. Um, and now if I'm serious about my results, I just need to stick to them. And, you know, I, I would do a pretty decent job of sticking to them for a while. And then as soon as motivation started lagging a little bit and I started missing the numbers, I would, I would just start to feel like a failure and just kind of like hit that fuck it point. Um, whereas like for, for this attempt, like I still have those same ebbs and flows of, of motivation, but there's been no, there's been no motivational collapse. Um, you know, sometimes I'm losing weight exactly at the rate I'm intending to. Sometimes I'm still heading in the right direction, but at half of my intended rate, sometimes there's just a lot of shit going on and I don't want to be dieting. I don't want to be in an energy deficit. Uh, and I mean, that's coming up. Holidays are coming up birthday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Dude, I'm not going to be trying to lose a pound a week through all of that. So uh, just take a break, be in maintenance for a while, and and it's okay. Uh, and so it, it's set me up in a position where, um, you know, I, I can do a better job of savoring my successes. And it's more, it's more a matter of just kind of, of, qualitatively assessing was this a big win was this a small win or um you know if i do go way over my targets one day it's a learning experience you know like one day can't it's impossible for one day to be that big of a setback unless i allow it to be a setback and snowball you know so yeah um yeah just just uh adopting more more flexible restraint has been huge so that that first one uh, went longer than I expected it to, but I thought that was a good conversation. Yeah. Moving on, though, this one will absolutely be short because it uh, more or less restates your segment from the last episode of the podcast where you were talking about uh, protein intake targets. So the second bit of advice that I think uh, might be generally good advice in a vacuum, but that sometimes can do more harm than good when just applied as a blanket statement is uh, giving people or or telling people that they should select like quite high protein targets. Um, So like I said, for for an in-depth discussion of this, uh, dear audience, refer to the previous episode. Um, But yeah, with with high protein targets, um, for bodybuilders, it can make a lot of sense. Like taking a better safe than sorry approach to protein intake because protein intake is very important for maintaining muscle mass in an energy deficit. And it gets more and more important the leaner and leaner someone gets. If you're going from, you know, 40% body fat to 35% body fat at a, you know, reasonable rate of weight loss, you got a resistance training stimulus in there, you, you don't have to worry about losing muscle. When you're taking off the last five pounds before a show and going from 8% to 5% body fat, then you probably do need to worry about it uh, quite a bit more. And, uh, you know, again, the whole point of the sport is to be as muscular as possible and as lean as possible. And so if if you can uh, 
if eating a little bit more protein can help you maintain an additional half pound of muscle over the course of a diet, that, you know, that could be the difference in placing at, at a show. So um, it, it makes more sense to kind of give people uh, better safe than sorry type protein targets. And um, yeah, I mean, for for most people, there, there just aren't those same sets of concerns. So uh, like we talked about in the last episode, well, I say we, like Eric talked about in the last episode, um, the difference between a protein target of like 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilogram and say 2.2 grams per kilogram or above just doesn't seem to be partic- particularly large or particularly, uh, we, we don't super consistently observe that there even is a difference to begin with in, in the literature. Like it, yeah. If you start getting down to a gram per kilo or below, like that certainly seems like it will probably have deleterious effects for the amount of muscle you'll maintain if you're in a deficit, the amount of muscle you'll gain in a surplus. But, you know, it it seems like pretty, pretty moderate protein intakes probably get the job done pretty well for most people most of the time. Um, and, you know, if so... Previously, again, I, I used to just use that old heuristic of a gram per pound, just 2.2 grams per kilo. Um, and and I really found that that just didn't work for me. Um, so uh, one of the one of the big considerations here, again, with just like a successful diet is you need to be able to stick with it. And it also needs to accommodate the rest of your life, and it, it needs to uh, set you up for success at the end of a diet. And I found that, you know, when, when I was trying to get more than a gram per pound of protein, that basically necessitated a lot of chicken breast, uh, a lot of protein shakes, and just like a lot of foods that I didn't particularly like. And like, I, I have it easier than a lot of people do, because like, I'm an omnivore, like it's going to be harder for a vegetarian or a vegan. Um, and like, I also just don't have that many social things I do. But if you're going out for with friends a lot to restaurants and whatnot, um, having a lot of meals with family, and you're trying to get in a gram per pound of protein with a lot of food options that are like fattier, higher carb, then the choices you'll have to make to hit that protein target will probably be reasonably incompatible with actually staying in an energy deficit in the first place. And will often uh, require kind of trade-offs and choices that, that lock you into a diet that you probably won't want to stick with for the next 50 years. You know, it, it seemed like you wanted to say something. Oh, um, I, I was just kind of smiling because I've, I've heard of anecdotes where, people will be like in bodybuilding prep and they'll be like, uh, yeah, I want to go out to eat with the family, but you know, I have to, it, it, this is especially people who set really, really, really high protein targets. And they're like, yeah. So I went to this restaurant and I said, boil me two chicken breasts and then steam me some vegetables. And if, if I even smell butter near those vegetables, I will walk back into the kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, like they just create this like special order and they spend like, $30 on the absolute shittiest dinner they've ever eaten. Uh, so when you were talking about how like a lot of times, so a lot of times people do kind of feel like they're pushed into this situation, even outside of a restaurant scenario where they're like, okay, it's the end of the day or close to the end. 
Uh, I feel completely satiated. I'm fine. I don't feel like eating, mm-hmm. but I've only had 1.4 grams per kilogram of protein per day. And therefore, in order to hit my protein target, I'm going to have another meal just to check that box. And in that meal, to make that protein palatable, I'm going to also bring in additional carbohydrate and fat. And and it can get to the situation where it's like, that that was ultimately, if the goal was fat loss, you probably didn't even really need that extra bump from to get you above 1.4 that day. And you just invited all these other calories that just chipped away at your deficit for no no good reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A- absolutely. So, you know, you're you ultimately do need to consume enough protein, like not trying to state that protein intake is completely unimportant. But I do think a lot of people, myself included, find that somewhat lower protein targets um, are just more compatible with the way that they want to eat and the way that they can see themselves eating for the rest of their lives. Uh, And, you know, not most people don't want to live on a diet of of protein shakes and uh boneless skinless chicken breasts and broccoli for in, in perpetuity. Yeah. Um and I mean also man with with inflation being what it is, a lot of protein rich foods are are kind of expensive. So if uh if money's tight, dropping down from 2.2 to 1.4, like there there might be some some non-trivial cost savings associated with that as well. Well no, I mean you you always hear like especially like in, in the US, you hear college aged folks who are trying to build muscle and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to bulk, but it's so expensive. The vast majority of that expense is their protein. Yeah. The vast majority. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, like my, my issue with, with this bit of advice isn't necessarily the advice itself in a vacuum. My, my issue is more with how it's often like framed and messaged. Um, so, you know, for example, I think that saying something like, as long as you're getting in about 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilo, you're fine. But aiming for 1.6 may not be a bad idea uh, if it's feasible for you. I think that's perfectly fine. That seems to be in keeping with the evidence. Um, it's not setting 1.6 grams per kilo as a rigid and flexible target you have to shoot for. Uh, but, you know, if if 1.6 or above is in keeping with someone's preferences um yeah it's i'm i'm sure they don't lose anything by by getting up that high uh whereas the the way i often see it framed is just you got to get in 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilo and bad things will happen if you don't and and i do think that uh the advice about protein when framed that way uh has has the potential to to do more harm than good yeah i I think that's Totally accurate. And one of the things that made me smile is like you had mentioned like a moderate protein intake. Um, But but what's kind of convenient is that this like 1.2 gram per kilogram general area, like a lot of Americans end up there unintentionally. Like if, if you read the public health literature, sometimes you'll get like these really panicky papers that say, Americans are overeating pro- protein and it's a huge problem. And it's like, oh yeah, we found that they're eating like 1.2. So a lot of people who are embarking on a diet might be at the kind of tail end of this range just based on their dietary preferences alone. And they might not have to really make any major changes to get into that 1.2 range. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, so moving on, the the fourth uh, bit of advice that I think... Um, makes a ton of sense for bodybuilders which is which is where a a lot of this stuff originates but 
may not be the best just kind of blanket advice for people to give uh, or receive is the the advice that I that I see commonly in a lot of circles that if you're trying to set up a diet to lose weight, one of the things that you should really try to prioritize is eating basically as bland of foods as you can stomach. Um, and so for bodybuilders, that kind of makes sense. So with um, so the the thinking behind this this bit of advice is that human energy intake is regulated by a lot of different things, but specifically for for feeding behavior uh, or eating behavior, you have hedonic and non-hedonic eating. And non-hedonic eating um, seems to be, in large part, just kind of your your body integrating a lot of signals related to fuel availability, um, satiety, long-term energy status, etc., and trying to like tune your appetite to consume enough calories for survival. Uh, but then, you know, we humans, we're, we're not just, uh, you know, we're, we're not just basically amoebas uh, responding to just cues from our environment about how much we need to eat to survive. We also have uh, food science and a lot of delicious ingredients uh, and highly processed foods that taste very good that you want to eat in large quantities. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this has eaten more than they really wanted to at some point just because the food was delicious. And that is hedonic eating. And um, yeah, so if, if all of the food you eat in your diet doesn't like tr really trigger that hedonic response, uh, that can that can help cut down on hedonic eating and, and large deviations from your your dietary goals and targets. And I think that that is the sort of thing that that can be quite important for for bodybuilders as they're trying to get very lean. Because um, I think like, I mean, just from talking to people who've been there, like your your brain can kind of get in a state where you haven't eaten much that's really tasted good in a long time. And when something very yummy is put in front of you, a lot of people like even if they generally have like a pretty, pretty normal relationship with food, otherwise just kind of, uh, j just attack highly palatable, very hedonic food, like a feral animal yeah. when they're like super, super lean. So, so like, yeah, like that's, um, it, it makes sense for that it, population. It gets different. Yeah. Uh, so like uh, there, there's a great paper. Uh, if I remember, I'll try to link it in the show notes, but it, it's about the uh, participants in the Minnesota starvation experiment. Mm -hmm. And like, it really does get different when you start getting really, really lean. Like it, they, like if you read that paper, they don't say, Oh, when they got lean, boy, did they sure get hungry? It it's, it's psychosis. I mean, it, it is like psychological, like things are different, you know, mm -hmm. like in that study that they were like, okay, if you want to chew gum just to kind of have, you know, something in your mouth and a little bit of flavor, go for it. And then they were eating just dozens of packs of gum a day. And they're like, okay, you, you can't do the gum anymore. Right. Yeah. They would, they would find that people were just kind of so fixated on food and just kind of like obsessing over, uh, thinking about uh or you know like i've talked to you know, i've heard anecdotes of bodybuilders who aggregate 
and collect cooking supplies and mm-hmm. recipes that yeah. they know they can't use for the next like four months. Um, but yeah, th- there there are like really uh, pathological, psychological kind of changes that can happen. In the vast majority of cases, they are transient and acute. And then once you kind of get back into the swing of things, they go away. But but yeah, there, there's for bodybuilders, there is an application of this because you will find that when you're in that kind of semi-starvation state and you have a really a, a level of food fixation that's very atypical for you and you kind of open the floodgates by having, oh, okay, I guess I'll have a bite of that. You can't really put that back in. Yeah. You know, it, once it's out of the bag, like stuff ha- has a tendency to go kind of haywire. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the other very important thing to note is, Again, with bodybuilders, you're talking about a time-limited diet. Uh, you're you're really going to uh, cinch things down really tight for a period of months to get in insane condition for a show, and that's it. Then you go back to eating other stuff. But again, if, if the goal is to lose weight and keep it off long-term, th- that's, that's not really what you're doing. You're trying to build skills that you can transfer to the rest of your life. And so... I think that um, I, I think that this advice can make sense if it's not taken to the extreme. So, a lot of people run into trouble with overconsuming like like hyper palatable foods and a ton of just like really really highly processed refined foods. So I, I'm certainly not saying like oh yeah like your goal when you're trying to lose weight and keep it off is try to figure out how you can be in an energy deficit while consuming the maximum number of pop tarts possible like that that's certainly not what i'm saying um but i i think that the value of pursuing blandness of food for its own sake um probably isn't a great thing to pursue for a couple reasons one is that for most people that's just going to harm adherence with your diet like we we live in a world with a lot of food options and a lot of really yummy food options and if you're a bodybuilder and you're you know, you know, you need to get on stage in speedos in three months and uh, and look a certain way when when that's like like you you need to look a certain way on a certain date. I think that helps a lot with adherence, like because you 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 don't want to make a fool of yourself in front of your peers in the sport. But I mean, for for a lot of folks, if you say like, hey, I'm just going to have the most bland food possible in my house all the time, and that's the only thing that I'm going to eat on my diet, and then you stop in a gas station and see the snacks, you need to go to the store, you drive by a restaurant, walk by a restaurant, whatever, and there are just so many other much, much more delicious food options there, and you don't have the same sort of like extreme external pressure forcing you to adhere to your diet uh then you're going to find adherence is just more challenging because everything else that is very easily available for you to eat just tastes better than than what you're trying to force yourself to eat um this is also going to conflict a lot with social situations so if if you're if you get in the mindset that i can only adhere to my diet and not go off the rails if I'm only eating bland food, then like if you find yourself in a social situation where you like quote unquote have to eat more palatable food like that, that might fuck with your head a little bit, um, make it easier to kind of go off the rails. 
And then lastly, like, again, a big theme here is you're trying to, you're, the process of losing weight should be a learning process for developing the skills that will transfer to the rest of your life. And I mean, I, I don't think most people want to live on chicken breast and rice for 50 years, you know? So, um, there, there is kind of a process you have to go through of whatever food you find, like, you know, not hyper processed, not hyper palatable, but, but tastes good. Like it's good palatable food that you enjoy eating. Um, like you, you need to be able to consume that in moderation and, uh, find something you can stick to, you know? So, uh, yeah, the, the fixation on just like only eating bland foods and just the blandest stuff uh, that you can that you can stomach i don't think sets uh, most people up for long-term success yeah and th there's one kind of assumption that is uh usually tied to that recommendation which is like okay you are doing a bodybuilding style diet mm -hmm. which means that we assume that the the you know calorie intake and macro intake is fixed mm -hmm. right and so then it just becomes well should i try to eat really really tasty stuff to hit that fixed set of macros or some kind of more bland stuff and the thought process is generally like well when you're eating the really hyper palatable stuff you're you're still eating the same amount but it's just going to be a tragedy when the meal ends you're going to yeah. be like i don't want to stop it's like well why put yourself through that just eat some stuff that's a little bit more boring you're hitting the same macros anyway you know it'll just make your life a little less painful for for this short term kind of diet um, but when people try to use this advice in a scenario where macros are not fixed, you know, they're not going to get on stage in 12 weeks. So they're, they're like, sometimes you'll see people who say, you know what, I'm afraid that if I eat that cookie, I'm going to eat 300 calories or 400 calories worth of cookies. So I'm going to keep to the bland chicken breast, chicken breast and broccoli and rice. And what they'll do is they'll eat a serving of that. And it clearly didn't scratch the itch that they were going for with that kind of hedonic feeding urge. Yeah. And they say, well, eh, maybe if I just eat more of this bland stuff, it'll scratch that itch. And it usually doesn't. Um, mm -hmm. And so like one of two situations is actually pretty common when food intake is not rigidly fixed as it would be for bodybuilders, which is either in order to avoid the 400 calorie cookie splurge, you eat 400 calories worth of this other stuff. And in terms of energy balance, you end up in the same place. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other is instead of get, you know, to try to avoid that 400 calorie cookie splurge, you eat like 300 calories worth of the boring stuff and then say, that didn't really work. I'm going to have the damn cookies anyway. <laughs> and then it becomes additive yeah. rather than replacing. So sometimes people will think I can basically tune out my hedonic urge to eat by really leaning into eating stuff that will satisfy satiety signals. And they're completely, they're not completely separate, but they are different. They're distinct. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times people think that, well, if I just get full or nearly full, I won't have this hedonic urge to eat anymore. And that rarely seems to be the case. So in scenarios where calories aren't fixed, it's not just that this advice isn't as useful. It, it can actually sometimes directly backfire in terms of just the sheer amount of energy intake oh absolutely uh and then so the the final thing i have on this list of of advice that uh i think is is sometimes good in a vacuum in this case i think it's advice that really is just good for bodybuilders uh 
and really isn't that good in a vacuum otherwise, but, but certainly isn't helpful for most people, is uh, a focus on the outcome of a diet rather than the process of a diet, uh, and particularly kind of time-based and time-limited outcome goals. And I, I think that a lot of a lot of times this isn't directly stated, but it's it's kind of tacitly implied by the sort of content people put out and the sort of advice that that people give, even if they're not like explicitly saying to focus on these things. Um, so you know, in terms of focusing on on outcomes, this is a very visually driven industry. Um, like people who talk about physique stuff, people who talk about nutrition. Uh, like there's this saying, like your body is your business card, uh, which should it be? I don't know. Maybe not. But I mean, it is. That's uh, that if you're a professional in this field uh, and you have a much, much better physique than most of your peers, that's probably going to help your bottom line. And so it it makes sense to put that front and center. Um, but you know, what does that tacitly communicate to your audience? Like it tacitly communicates like looking this way is is valuable and this is what you should want. Like you should try to be focusing on this outcome. Also, just in terms of how people sell their services, like before and afters are huge, which again makes sense. Like uh, people like to see someone who who looks similar to them before and then, you know, Four months later, they have a physique that that they would kill for, you know. So, but again, before and afters, without further context, that is just a focus on the outcome of of a diet, not necessarily the process. Um, and then, like the like, it, it's still pretty common to see people um, who who are doing like general general health and fitness coaching with a nutrition component um do do challenges where it's like hey i'm putting together a group and we're all going to try to lose 20 pounds in 6 weeks or whatever which again that that is a focus on a time based outcome and i again i think a lot of this for bodybuilders makes all the sense in the world that is literally the sport you start your diet on a certain day your show is on a certain day you got to look a certain way by that day like the, the outcome, the physique itself, that is your sport, and doing it in a fixed amount of time, that is what the sport entails. But I don't think that is really helpful advice to trickle down to virtually anyone else. Um, <laughs> the, the time it does make sense is if someone's a strength athlete and they're trying to like cut to the next lowest weight class, because then it's sort of the same deal. You know, you need to be below a certain body weight on a certain date for for weighing in. But otherwise, like, yeah, no, that's that's just not uh that's not helpful. So I I do think that I do think that it might be a little bit useful on the front end because you know p people want what they want and they want it now. They don't want to if you if you tell someone like hey, you can have the physique you want in 4 months or we're going to focus on the process, maybe you get there in 4 months, maybe you get there in 2 years. Just as a sales pitch, we're going to get there in 4 months is way way more appealing. But then once you actually get into it, um, it, it circles back to a lot of the, the things we've been talking about to this point. Like if you're trying to lose X amount of weight in X weeks and you fall behind and, and you really have a rigid end date, 
you know, now you have created for yourself a potential vector for failure where one doesn't need to exist. Like if it's more of an open-ended thing, you're just trying to lose weight you're, and you're focusing on the process of building the skills necessary to stay in an energy deficit, do it in a way that's that's feasible and sustainable for you, building the skills to uh, maintain that weight loss at the end of a diet. Um, you know, maybe you fall a little bit uh, behind schedule, so to speak, but you're learning a lot through that entire process. And with a with a process orientation rather than an out than a outcome orientation, it, it gives you just more more just room and grace, I suppose, um, to to build those skills and to interpret setbacks and falling behind schedule and all of that stuff less as um, less as a failure, less as an indication that you are uh, likely to fall short of your goal of achieving a certain look or a certain amount of weight loss by a particular date or in a certain period of time. And it's easier to reframe those as learning opportunities. Like if you if you had some strategies that had been working well for you to stay in an energy deficit, everything seemed pretty feasible. And then just for for a week, the wheels fall off. You're finding it really, really challenging to stick to your your dietary targets. You have a ton of cravings, energy's low, uh, diet's just really going poorly. Um, you can either step back and say, "Oh no, like I'm trying to reach this goal in 12 weeks," and instead of moving forward for a week, I've moved back for a week. So now I'm functionally trying to reach the same goal I had before, but only in 10 weeks, because I just took a step back. And this week was already so hard. Like, I, I, I'm I, already regressing. So, like, now I have to be even more aggressive to get where I'm trying to go on a certain date. And it, like, that, that is, that's not a recipe for success. Like, it's, it's no wonder why people lose their motivation when they, when they have that mindset, if they hit any speed bumps whatsoever. And, I mean, newsflash, you're going to hit speed bumps. Um... But if it's more of like a process-oriented thing, you're not quite as focused on the outcome, certainly not in a time-limited space, you can step back and say, hey, this week was shit. Why did this happen? You know, um, maybe some of the strategies that have been working up to this point uh, are becoming less effective. Maybe it's just other stuff going on in my life, and I need to give myself some grace and get out of a deficit, be in maintenance for a while. Like, I, I don't need one more stressor in my life right now. Everything else is crazy. Uh, but I can take the lessons I've learned to this point, and once things calm down, use all of that to get back on track. Um, it, it's it's just not, it's just not a, a helpful orientation, just the extreme time-based, outcome-focused uh, approach to weight loss. Um, well, in, one thing that comes to mind is that, you know, some people have asked us why the default behavior and macro factor is. So for example, if you go 400 calories over your target on Monday, why don't they, you know, why doesn't that pull that out of Tuesday or maybe pull it out of like Tuesday and Wednesday? And if you want, you can, you can make the app behave that way. You, you know, there's a way to do it, but it's not the default behavior and it's exactly because of what you said. It's like in most cases, you know, when when you had a target and you went well above it, that means that there there might have been some challenge leading into that that discrepancy between target and observed intake. 
And the last thing we need to do is say, you know how it was so hard to hit this target yesterday that you went 400 above it? Guess what? That challenge might still be present, but it's going to be even harder because now in the presence of this slip up, we're going to tighten the screws even more. Yeah. And it's not just that we're going to get back on the horse, but we're actually shifting the targets downward to make yeah. it even harder to get there. Um, and, and like you said, if, if you get really locked into that short time scale, outcome focused, time dependent goal, you start to put yourself in a situation where it can become immensely overwhelming and stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's it's the same thing with how uh, like goal progression works in macro factor as well. Like, you know, uh, when, when you set a goal, uh, the app tells you essentially like, hey, if you stick to this rate of weight loss or, or weight gain, but we're talking about weight loss in, in this segment, if you stick to this precise rate of weight loss, uh, this is the date at, at which you'll reach your goal. Um, and I, I think people, I think some users expect us to like enforce that end date rather than the updates to be informative, like, hey, to continue losing weight at the rate you want to, this is what you should aim for. And they'll say like, you know, hey, I, I was trying to lose um, 20 pounds in 10 weeks and I'm five weeks in and I've only lost six pounds and the app isn't dropping my calories really low to try to to try to get me there by what I thought my end date would be. Um, and it's it's kind of the kind of the same deal, you know, if like diets get harder the longer you do them. And if it has been like if if it was already a challenge to lose 10 pounds in the first five weeks, like if you already fell behind that that timeline, odds are pretty low that we could increase the target rate of weight loss by 50% and still get you to 20 pounds in 10 weeks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it like we, like ultimately we want, we want success to snowball, but we want to be able to put the brakes on setbacks before they can snowball into like true robust failures. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think that a, really outcome focused time-based approach to weight loss inverts that um <laughs> where uh you know if, if you're if you're rewarded for anything like getting ahead of schedule um you know that involves eating even less than your targets losing more weight quicker um and you know like you're you're uh functionally rewarded for being extra restrictive and then if you fall behind again because you were like it's just it's just fucking hard to stay in a consistent energy deficit if you find that challenging on the front end of a diet if you then make the diet even harder as you go along like you're you're putting people in aggregate in a scenario where um you you, you can't get that far ahead it's hard to feel that good about the success that you're achieving but boy, if you fall behind, instead of putting the brakes on, on those deviations and, and small failures, like they can, they can really snowball into just full-on motivational collapse. Yeah. Um, so yeah, really the, the point I'm trying to make in, in broad strokes with this segment is that I, I think a lot of the advice that is given in the fitness industry from well-informed, well-intentioned people tacitly has kind of the underlying assumption that 
food has little value for its own sake, that you'll always be able to stick to your diet, uh, and that you're aiming to get as lean as humans are capable of getting. Uh, So in essence, the advice, kind of the, the tacit underlying assumption is if you perfectly execute on all of these things, you will get diced. Um, and really the, the optimal body composition outcome is the only thing that matters. And therefore this is good advice that you should follow. And if those assumptions are true, then yeah, it's good advice that you should follow. But that is not how most folks are, you know, uh, Food does have value uh, beyond the physique it can help you achieve. It tastes good. There, there's social value to it, cultural value to it. Um, you know, the the assumption that everyone will always perfectly stick to their diet, that is quantifiably a bad assumption. So it's less about saying, hey, I'm going to assume everyone listening to this advice is robots, and with that assumption, I will tell them how to perfectly achieve their physique goals. Um, those aren't the people in your audience, you know, <laughs> like they're, it, it, it is more about helping people develop strategies to do good enough for long enough to get where they're trying to go and then be able to sustain it. Uh, so I, I think for most people, the, the stakes and ultimate goals of a diet are different than they are in for, for bodybuilders and bodybuilding prep coaches. Uh, and quote unquote, good enough is good enough. Uh, and the, the real goal is that you're aiming to build skills that will help you, uh, maintain weight loss. And you're aiming to find a style of eating that you would be happy to stick with for, for the rest of your life. And so I think that's, I, I think that's the lens as a consumer of information that you should view advice through. Um, you know, something that might be excellent advice if you could do it for the rest of your life might also be advice that you just have no interest in implementing for the rest of your life. And if that's the case, it's probably not advice that you want to, to implement while attempting to lose weight, because ultimately you're going to have to drop that and do something else once you lose the weight. And now it's time to maintain that weight loss. So I I think it's generally a better approach to, um, to, to focus on those things and build those skills along the way instead of separating kind of diet life from post-diet maintenance life. Like you're, yeah, it's it's a process of, of finding something that uh, once you get out of the diet, you're perfectly happy to eat the exact same way you were during the diet or very, very similar with the sole exception of, hey, now you can eat a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think this is great advice. The one thing I would add to it, which I assume that you would agree with, is you know we've talked in recent weeks a lot about inter-individual variation mm-hmm. and response variability, and the the underlying premise of those conversations is that different people are in fact different people, yeah, and, and yeah. they will respond to things a little bit differently. Um, and I, I know that just from observations, like you and I have very different dieting experiences. Yeah, uh, you know the. Uh, the the way that we approach it, the things that help us succeed are quite different. Um, and so I, I would say that for the vast majority of people, um, you know, what you're saying here is is going to lead them in a better direction than just the the kind of standard approach, which is, oh, let me take bodybuilding advice and apply it to a much different weight loss scenario. Mm-hmm. But I would encourage people if 
some of these things based on your experience have helped you, that's okay. You know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you don't have to work your way toward the norm if you have past experience or experiment, you know, you've experimented with some things and found, oh, I kind of respond differently than most folks. So like, for example, um, I, I've tried to do uh, really laid back approaches to dieting and I struggle with them because I've, I've done a lot of, um, I've done a lot of reflecting on this because I, I look at the literature that says exactly what you're saying. Exactly. And mm-hmm. I'm like, but it doesn't match my reality. Yeah. And I've, I've done a lot of uh, reflecting on that. And I think what I've come to find is that perhaps because of my dieting history, if I take a, a, a really relaxed approach to weight loss dieting, it doesn't get into the sweet spot of goal setting where mm-hmm. it's challenging enough to excite me. Yeah. And so it's not that I get demotivated by falling short of the goal. It's that I get demotivated because the goal is not yet exciting enough to me. It's not as it's not challenging enough to get my foot in the door and to get rolling with it. Yeah. And so like some people might find things like that or some people might find, you know what, for me in the way that I eat, uh, you know, I'm just really sensitive to hyper palatable foods, even if I'm not absolutely shredded. And so for me, it's best to kind of keep things at no more than like a seven out of 10 on that, like hyper palatability scale. Some people might find like high protein, maybe for you, hedonic eating is not a challenge during your, your dieting process, but satiety is something you really struggle with. And you find that maybe even going above 2.2 grams per kilogram helps you. I, I think or, it's, or it could just meet your food preferences better. Exactly. I mean, yeah. Some people just really, really love a ton of very lean protein rich foods. I, I don't know how <laughs> makes no sense to me, but those people exist and i'm certainly not going to tell them they're they're wrong for that preference yeah yeah so i just wanted to in the interest of being fully comprehensive i wanted to leave that door cracked for people so that they 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 feel uh encouraged to experience their own experiences and actually utilize that information you know I, i think whether it's training or nutrition or some of the psychological elements of interventions, it is important to lean on your own experiences and take them seriously. I, I agree. And just to just to add two things, one, like to to just reiterate something I said up top, but to make it very clear, a, a lot of this stuff is good advice in a vac in a vacuum, yeah, but becomes unhelpful advice if it leads to issues with implementation. But if you've tried, like if you've taken some of this advice on board, implemented it, and it didn't lead to issues with with implementation and sticking with it long term, then it is great advice in a vacuum and it's great advice for you. You know, like like you said, it matches your experience, works well for you. The other thing I'll say is that um, with with a with a lot of your your experiences, like like that you noted, some of the things you found for yourself that uh, seem to comport better with some of this advice and seem to conflict a little bit with the literature. I wonder if it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario where the the people for whom bodybuilding advice, like bodybuilding type nutrition advice works well and, and matches well with their psychology, doesn't lead to, to issues with implementation and adherence, 
I wonder if those people are just the folks who are disproportionately likely to become bodybuilders in the first place. I, I <laughs> was thinking about that um, when I was like, well, I don't know. Some of this stuff has been really like when I because like, I have intentionally said, no, I'm going to be more compatible with the literature and take a more chill approach to my next diet. And I just can't get into it. So, yeah, I, I do think that uh, I do think that to some <laughs> to some extent, bodybuilding is an innate stable trait of a human being yeah rather than it is a uh a hobby or pursuit like i i do think that there are some of those traits that are fairly stable and persistent in me that nudge me towards certain approaches to dieting yeah i i think it's i mean mo sports as a whole select for for different types of people um you know like it, it to to be a power lifter um there's a certain there's a certain level of psychosis you need to have to get very far in the sport because, uh, I mean, I'm sure I'm going to make some people upset by saying this, but there are inherent risks and dangers associated with the sport that aren't inherent to all forms of general resistance training. Um, like catastrophic things can happen when you have 700 pounds on your back. <laughs> yeah. uh, they're unlikely to happen. They generally don't happen. But when you walk that weight out, like you feel it. You, you know well, that if if something goes astray, my life could irrevocably change in this moment for the worse. Well, yeah. And like, you know, like an equipped bench presser. Yeah. Uh, many of them are very familiar with what it feels like when your radius and ulna are bending start flexing yeah 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 Th that's an unusual thing yeah and so it that the sport selects for a type of person who isn't just comfortable with those things but who likes those things <laughs> yeah. which is which is atypical and so i think that i think that bodybuilding is similar like i think it selects for people with like particular personality types and particular uh, relationships with with food, their own bodies, like satiety cues and signals, all of that stuff that probably in aggregate differs from population norms to a to a pretty large extent. Yeah, uh, which further just on a fundamental level calls into question the utility of, you know, just just normal folks trying to lose 10, 20, 30 pounds and keep it off taking advice that bodybuilders have uh developed and found to be very effective for themselves and other bodybuilders yeah yeah it definitely reinforces that point and i i think you know your segment does a good job of saying like here is the bodybuilding toolkit yeah and here is the not bodybuilding toolkit and what i would and i'm sure you would encourage people to do is give yourself access to all the tools, right? So like a lot of the people who are really into this kind of bodybuilding oriented advice say, no, no that other stuff doesn't work. That That's not serious enough to work. And then people who embrace these other sets of approaches might say, oh, that bodybuilding stuff, way too rigid. It'll never work for anybody. The ideal scenario is grow your toolkit, mm -hmm. you know, figure out what's going to work for you, but don't feel like just because you're losing weight or you want to lose weight, that all of a sudden you're locked into the body to the lifestyle of a bodybuilder in 1985 with a fanny pack and the the white and black pants. They need to bring those pants back. They need to bring actually fanny packs are coming back. Yeah, but I, I hear people are wearing them like around their shoulder. Yeah, that's yeah. not the same. 
it's not a fanny pack anymore it's not yeah um all right ready to move on let's do it cool um so my segment's gonna be really short really really short uh and the, the 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 title here is what is the healthiest diet um so i was getting into this a little bit because um i was doing a piece for mass about just kind of painting with broad strokes about nutrition like it if you were just to give someone a really simple set of guidelines and say, you know what, this is going to broadly nudge you in the direction of a healthy eating pattern. Is this perfect? Have we fully solved human nutrition and optimized it for performance and longevity? Not quite. We're not there, you know, but we have learned a couple things. And I think it's important to, when possible, lean on the things that we have some decent evidence for, right? So, um, I, I was putting together this piece about like, what are some of those guidelines that can broadly set us in the right direction with our eating patterns? Um, so that's one reason I wanted to talk about this. The other reason is I don't think it's happening more or changing all that much, but I feel like in recent months, I've been so much more aware of the arguments on social media of just like the wars between all these different popular diets and, and everyone's so focused on identifying the one and only optimal diet for the entirety of humanity uh, that is perfect in all ways, not just in some ways, but actually my way of dieting is best for your brain, your performance, your body comp, your long-term health, longevity, cardiometabolic health, even the environment, all of the things are best with my diet. Uh, and and when you see when you see people making those those same sets of claims for two diets that are literally mutually exclusive, you're like, what the hell is going on here, guys? Yeah. Um. And so it's it's harder than let, ever. Let me let me note up top as as both your friend and business partner, I am uh, both both delighted and terrified by this by this recent development of you becoming aware of these things because I remember. I remember back when we met and you were in grad school and we would talk about just like fitness industry stuff. You had a, a pretty good knowledge of everything that had been going on before you went to grad school. And then things that had happened within the last like four or five years, very murky. You're a bit busy guy in the lab all the time, barely on social media, not really monitoring the chatter. And now you've, you've been out of grad school enough and worked in a business that has to be on social media for, for things to function enough that over the last two or three years, you've, you've started to become sucked into the vortex of just the, the dumbest and most ridiculous, but also most entertaining online arguments about inane shit related to health, nutrition, fitness. And, uh, I, I'm so excited for what, what the future holds as you continue to descend down those rabbit holes. Yeah, I mean, so like for context here, you know, my brain didn't fully come online, especially in the nutrition world, you know, until like the late 2000s, which would have put me in my late teens, basically. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, all the stuff that was going on in the 70s and 80s, perhaps it was as vitriolic and just flatly insane as it is today i doubt it um but but yeah then so i was kind of tapped in in the like late 2000s early 2010s then i went to grad school and everything happening in the outside world was just silenced i was just kind of stuck in the lab 
physically and mentally. And yeah, I, I've emerged and I'm just like, what in the world's going on? And I will admit, I've been clicking on more things lately. Yeah. And so now all of the algorithm focused social media sites are like, oh, you like really dumb claims about nutrition? J- guess what? I have a million of them and, yeah. and they're just flooding into my feed. So I, I do think, I, like I said over the last couple months, but it's really been over the last few years, but over the last couple months, I've been clicking stuff. Yeah. And and I'm really seeing the full weight of <laughs> algorithmic social media uh, and news feed stuff. It's good stuff. Man. Yeah. My news feeds and timelines and all that stuff are just getting insane. Like I'm losing touch with reality from some of the stuff I'm seeing. Uh, it, it's just... Uh, a, a dazzling array of just insane claims and and exaggerations and just flat out <laughs> misinformation uh about nutrition so anyway uh you know like i i feel like back in the day it wasn't quite like this where there was like some general agreement on you know broadly speaking what a decent diet looked like yeah. and then there, there yeah. were you know there of course quibbling over the details and then Maybe uh, following some lines of research that eventually fell flat. You know, for a minute there, everyone's like, oh, this this margarine stuff seems pretty great. We can make these, these trans fatty acids. That seems like a good idea. And then eventually they're like, ah, yeah, about the trans fatty acids. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. You know, so um, anyway, these days things have gotten wild. And, and one of the things that um, really jumps out to me is that science is incremental and it's slow it's slow and it's incremental every now and then you'll have a paradigm shift that will really fundamentally change the trajectory of that boring slow kind of incremental progress but in the nutrition space right now everyone is fully committed it seems to just imploding the paradigm like I can't tell you the number of pitches for a fringe diet that they they all start with. Okay, first of all, forget everything you thought you knew about nutrition. And it's like, but I don't want to. I don't think it's a good idea for that to be the starting point for all nutritional discourse is forget everything you believe you you know. Yeah, I I mean, if if you fully subscribe to the current scientific consensus really on any topic but like nutrition included uh you will probably take on five percent incorrect beliefs just because yeah science doesn't know everything yet uh things are provisional um and yeah like the the history of science suggests that we've been wrong about plenty of things before and i'm sure we're we're wrong about plenty of things right now but what percentage of our current scientific understanding of nutrition is wrong? I feel like it's a number less than 100%. So someone yeah. saying throw out everything, there are a lot of babies being tossed out with that bathwater. Yeah, it, it kind of feels like if you were slowly and methodically over about eight decades working your way toward the center of a maze, and then uh, on a whim you just said, can you take me back to the start? I, I just want to start fresh and see what happens yeah, right and it's yeah. like you can look at it from above and be like dude you were pretty close <laughs> like you were really you were really getting there yeah before you said hey on a whim i'll start over and, and try my luck with a different path yeah so yeah there's there's this knee-jerk reaction of just forget everything that people have 
forget all the knowledge that has has been obtained over the last hundred years, and let's just like go on vibes or you know strained theories and dude, I was telling you off air. I saw a thing. You know, people look at these univariate correlations. It's, okay, let's forget everything else in the world exists and only look at two variables, right? And, you know, you'll see this all the time. You'll say, well, we'll look at saturated fat increase has, uh, intake has increased since the 80s and look at this cardiometabolic out or obesity rates. You know, mm, it looks like they're both going up at the same time. Not good. Or, you know, hey, look at sugar intake over the last 30 years and obesity rates. Looks like they're both going up. Dude, I saw one the other day. <laughs> I was looking at, you know, again, with a univariate correlation like this, it's basically saying, okay, let's just assume everything else is equal. No other major confounders that we really have to worry about here. Uh, pretty smooth sailing, but we'll just look at these two variables. Some nutritional variable and obesity rates. The x-axis started in the 17... I think it started at the year 1700, and it was looking at sugar intake in the UK. Love that. And, and like you were saying off air, it's like, if you're going to look at a temporal correlation with obesity, just like any instance of industrialization is going to correlate with obesity over that time scale. Yeah. Like, like virtually anything. Like, so yeah, th there's just so many... Uh, insanely off track posts that you can run into that's kind of why i wanted to do a little segment on like so what if we didn't forget everything we know and instead just kind of made a short list of the things that we feel pretty good about knowing mm -hmm. so that's really the direction here so you know there's all these diets to pick from and people that will defend them to the death uh you know high carb high fat carnivore vegan mediterranean the list goes on and on and on. There's there's these diets that people want to fight over. And always the question underlying those those conversations is, what is the best diet? And I feel very strongly that that is the wrong question to be asking. I would throw that question out entirely and I would start from a different perspective. And that is, first of all, what are the, the major health issues that appear to be uh, quite meaningfully impacted by dietary habits. You know, what are the most pressing health issues that seem to be very closely linked to dietary habits and behaviors? And, and to me, some of the ones that really come up are obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and cancer. Th those are some of the things that come to mind for me. And so then the second question you ask yourself, instead of what is the best diet for all things, you kind of key in on those if we're focused on health, right? So we'll kind of put performance and stuff aside. So we've got this kind of cluster of, uh, you know, pathologies or characteristics or whatever, these things that seem to be correlated with uh, negative cardiometabolic health outcomes or just generally, you know, mortality rates and other health outcomes. We've got this set of things we're focused on. Instead of asking what is the best diet for all things, what kind of dietary patterns patterns, not diets, seem to reduce or elevate risks for these independent outcomes, right? And so when we look at, for example, obesity rates, you know, and we say, well, what kind of dietary factors or patterns seem to be uh, important to consider here? You might look at a diet and say, okay, well, what kind of energy density are we talking about? Uh, in what way is this diet uh, supporting satiety, you know, satiety and hunger regulation. 
uh, what, how many hyper palatable foods are finding their way into this diet? What we're looking at is dietary patterns that generally promote uh, the overconsumption of total energy. You know, so the, the term you'll see in the literature sometimes is overnutrition. Just what kind of things within a dietary pattern nudge us toward overconsumption? And a lot of times it does come back to those factors, energy density, satiety regulation, and hyperpalatability. Uh, with diabetes, that was one of the ones I mentioned. Um, you know, uh, of course, overnutrition or overconsumption of energy is certainly a factor. So we would lean on those previous factors I, I mentioned there, those previous uh, broad dietary patterns. Um, and other things that come up, though, with diabetes is we might specifically look at to what extent are we kind of acutely overloading the liver with uh, excess energy substrates, not acutely it, like meal to meal, day to day, but are we having extended periods of time where we are coupling overnutrition with overconsumption of maybe some key nutrients that really promote uh, the accretion of fat within the liver itself? Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people underappreciate the role that the liver plays when it comes to glucose homeostasis, but uh, the gluc uh, the liver uh, influences many, many different pathways that are very critical in glycemic control. Yeah. And so if you're overfeeding and you have low physical activity, those two things alone are the key drivers. And I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, but you might also take it a step further and say, well, aside from those two main drivers, we might also be a little bit wary about dietary patterns that promote really high intakes of specific nutrients that uh, disproportionately facilitate fat accretion in the liver. And the two that come to mind would be saturated fat and fructose. That doesn't mean that you need to restrict both of those to the greatest extent possible. But what it means is, you know, if we want to limit risk for type 2 diabetes, we want to avoid overnutrition and low physical activity. Those are by far the most important drivers. But we can also look at some individual, like, if you're really going heavy on the saturated fat and the fructose, especially from added sugars, in combination with overnutrition and low activity, those are the types of patterns that we might want to keep our eye on. Yeah. Uh, with hypertension, broadly, in many cases, we're going to be looking at sodium, potassium, and, and some key phytonutrients that can affect vascular and endothelial function. Uh, heart disease... You know, we might be looking at specific fatty acid intakes, uh, added sugar intake, fiber intake. Uh, and then with cancer, we're looking in, in many cases at uh, intake of fiber, certain phytonutrients that, that might uh, decrease cancer risk. And then, of course, carcinogenic compounds that find their way directly into the diet, things that, that seem to have pretty direct links to uh, the promotion of cancer formation. So, uh, of course, these are hard to separate entirely, you know, because a lot of these fall under the umbrella of metabolic syndrome. And so overnutrition and low activity is kind of broadly influencing essentially all of these outcomes. But we can start to look into little kind of individual nuances for each outcome. And again, kind of ask ourselves, not just the name of a diet that works here, uh, but but broadly speaking, what kind of dietary guidelines and patterns might we be nudged toward if we were really focusing on minimizing risk here and this probably sounds like it's going to be like a three-hour segment where we go a deep dive into each individual um, outcome 
But instead, I want to lean on a couple sets of guidelines that I've uh, been looking over lately that I think provide a pretty sensible starting point. Now, the huge caveat that's going to carry a lot of weight here. Uh, I'm going to go over these guidelines. There's two different tables that have a, a high degree of overlap. I'm not saying that any diet that deviates from one of these guidelines is a seriously and severely flawed diet. That's not what I'm doing here. I'm not saying that when we put these together, we have the perfect human diet. Frankly, I've given up on the idea of a singular perfect human diet. Humans are pretty flexible, pretty adaptable. That's why we're still here uh, throughout all of the famines in our evolutionary history. Uh, we can adapt to a lot and live on a lot of different diets. Um, so, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, well, you know, this isn't technically an essential nutrient, therefore you should never eat it. And if you do eat it, it's bad for you. That, that's silly. You know, yeah. humans, there are some essential nutrients we need, uh, but to discredit a dietary pattern because it, in, it includes like carbohydrates that are not technically considered an essential nutrient, it's nonsense. It, it truly doesn't make any sense. Um, so what I'm going to talk about here are some guidelines. I, I do think it's funny that that same, same logic, like if, if that's what you're saying, like if something isn't necessary, you don't need to consume it at all. I've never seen someone apply that same logic to non-essential amino acids. Yeah. But like, why shouldn't it apply? You know? Yeah. No, it, it it's, um, it's a convenient way to discredit a dietary pattern that includes something that yours does not. Yeah, it's it's the type of thing where if you throw it out to an audience that doesn't really have their guard their guards up, it sound it sounds really uh insightful and impressive until you think about it for 3 seconds. Yeah. And then hopefully you have continued talking enough that people won't think about it for 3 seconds because they're thinking about the next thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what I'm going to talk about here is uh, a, a couple sets of dietary guidelines that, again, it's, it's kind of a la carte, you know, cafeteria style. When I'm putting together a dietary pattern and, and establishing eating behaviors and habits, what I want to try to do is check some of these boxes off. So this is not a concise list that leads you toward a particular named diet. This is just things that like, ah, it would be nice if your diet checks a lot of these boxes or... It, you know, we shouldn't really treat them as dichotomous either. So if, for example, you're supposed to get 400 grams a day of something and it's like, okay, well, I, I usually get about 320. Well, that's better than 100, right? So it's about, th these are some guidelines to shoot for. You want to get close to them if you can, uh, and ideally get close to many of them, you know, and, and check off as many of these boxes as you can. So table number one that I'm looking at here, I'll put it on the screen these are the healthy diet indicator criteria uh, from the World Health Organization. Uh, and I know uh, some people, the, the World Health Organization isn't necessarily your direct pathway to make people say, okay, now I can let my guard down. I, I know a lot of people have said a lot of things about the, the WHO in recent years. Uh, their Q rating, I guess, isn't as high as it used to be. Uh, Q rating is like a term that they'll use in like... Uh, various places like how do people generally view you like your general good vibes uh to to an audience yeah yeah so yeah people have been uh really critical of the world health organization and in some very 
specific pockets of the population, I'd say. Yeah, for a, I would say for a combination of of deserved and undeserved reasons, and yeah. I don't want to elaborate beyond that. Yeah. So what I want to get at here is, regardless of the organization, you don't want to just say, "Well, I'm going to turn off critical thinking," and just because any particular organization says something, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, uh, I'm I'm just going to blindly accept all of it. But in this case, uh, it's a set of criteria that is extremely compatible with the best available evidence in nutrition. It's a really rigorous set of criteria that I think uh, leads you toward uh, a really nice eating pattern. And for the record, I I currently have a high level of trust for the World Health Organization. I I think they're doing their best and generally doing a a decent job. Uh, But anyway, uh, table one here. Fruits and vegetables, you want to be aiming for over, uh, greater than or equal to 400 grams a day. Uh, total fat, you want to limit that to no more than 30% of total energy. Saturated fat, no more than 10% of total energy. Polyunsaturated fats, aiming for 6 to 11% of total energy. Uh, free sugar or like added sugars, less than 10% of total energy. Dietary fiber, at least 25 grams a day and potassium at least 3,500 milligrams per day. Now, people are going to look at that uh, in a variety of different diet um, groups, you know, people who are kind of really strong proponents of a particular diet. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some elements they love and some elements they hate. So, for example, if you're someone who's really, um, really adamant about ketogenic diets, you would look at total fat less than 30% of total energy. You're not going to like that. Mm-hmm. You're going to be pretty annoyed by that. But you might look at free, you know, added sugar less than 10% of total energy and say, well, yeah, that that makes sense. That's sensible. Um, so it's important to recognize, I'm not saying that like no one can be healthy on a ketogenic diet, right? But But this is kind of a list of just painting with broad strokes. What general dietary patterns seem to be associated with really positive outcomes in terms of mortality and just broadly cardiometabolic health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the first table. The second table, that, that was from 2015. That was the, the set of criteria. Uh, looking at 2020, uh, there's a, an updated set of criteria. I can't really tell based on the paper if this is necessarily like from the World Health Organization or if it's just a research group who said, I, we want to propose some 2020 updates to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, I, I do think it adds a couple little boxes to it that, that, are, that are pretty sensible. So um, the, the scoring for, for these three things is just greater than zero grams per day, mm-hmm. <laughs> which just means, hey, try to eat this stuff. Yeah, it, It's yeah. generally associated with some nice things. Uh, And and those categories are beans and other legumes, uh, nuts and seeds, and whole grains. And broadly speaking, when you look at the observational literature and you combine it with randomized controlled trials, uh, dietary patterns that feature these uh, in, you know, relatively moderate to to high amounts seem to seem to do pretty well. Right. So that's why the the uh, the recommendation is greater than zero grams. It's like try to build a diet that includes some of these things. Uh, it recommends limiting limiting dietary sodium to less than two grams a day, so less than 2,000 milligrams. It recommends zero grams per day of processed meat, which qualitatively speaking just means eh, probably don't 
eat processed meat. If you do, you know, try to limit that to the extent you can. And then for unprocessed meat, it says less than 71, less than or equal to 71 grams a day. Very oddly specific number. Um, but but what they're generally getting at there is, hey, you know, there's there's other protein sources that are not necessary. Or no, I said, I said unprocessed meat. It should be unprocessed red meat. Yeah. So that that's actually a big flub that I made there. So they're referring specifically to unprocessed red meat with that limit of less than or equal to 71 grams per day. So again, broadly speaking, what they're doing is looking at the literature in aggregate in its totality and saying, okay, these seem like generally good boxes to check when you're putting together a relatively healthy eating pattern. Um, And again, we don't want to approach this super dogmatically, right? So for example, with sodium, that's going to be one that gets people pretty riled up because right now there's a pretty big contingent, especially in the fitness space, saying like, you know what your biggest problem is? You're not having enough sodium and you need to have salt like before your workouts and stuff. Um, And and then there's another contingent that's kind of more from the conventional health literature saying, it seems like, you know, in populations where there's really high sodium intake, hypertension seems to be a prevalent issue. And for a large percentage of those folks, reducing sodium and or increasing potassium seems to very much help with those hypertension outcomes. So with sodium, it gets complicated because there does seem to be uh, some diversity in terms of genotype, where some people are more sensitive to salt than others when it comes to blood pressure and hypertension. So some people will increase their dietary sodium, and it really doesn't affect their blood pressure much at all. Uh, some people increase their dietary sodium and their blood pressure goes up, and they might have higher risk for hypertension. Uh, and there are even some people who uh, they almost have like an inverse relationship where if they are at their normal level and they drastically minimize their sodium intake, their blood pressure actually goes up, uh, which is which is a bit odd. Um, and, and so I, I, I don't think it's easy to do like a one size fits all recommendation for sodium. And then, of course, I mean, you start talking about athletes who compete in or, or train, train and compete in hot weather. And, you know, they're losing a lot of sodium in their sweat. So their sodium needs are kind of influenced by that. So again, we're not, we're not putting these guidelines on a pedestal and being super dogmatic and saying you need to check every single box regardless of context. But, you know, like I was getting at earlier, I think when it comes to putting together a healthy dietary pattern, we want to just kind of lean on what seems to be the consensus of the best available evidence. Like, what things do we have a pretty good handle on currently when we look at long-term cardiometabolic outcomes and mortality outcomes? And when we kind of put these two tables together, we start to get a really nice set of dietary criteria that we can broadly view as compatible with favorable health outcomes. Uh, To what extent you wish to adhere to any particular one of these is totally up to you. Like, I'm not here to get in an argument with someone who says, well, I, I like to eat way more than 30% of my calories from fat. That's totally fine. What I would say to that person, and a lot of people are in that position, ketogenic diet does have some very sensible applications. Um, but what I would say is, okay, you want to have 70% of your calories coming from fat. That falls short of one of these boxes. Um, but where's that fat coming from? You know, maybe, maybe then you say, okay, but you know, I am limiting added sugar. I am eating plenty of, uh, you know, 
very fibrous, low starch vegetables so that I'm getting fiber and I'm getting my vegetables every day. Uh, through that, maybe I'm getting plenty of potassium. My fiber is adequate. You know, what, what I would encourage people to do is not say, there's one criterion on this list that I hate, therefore I'm throwing out everything. Yeah. You know, the, the purpose of this, you know, you might say, well, I, I don't really like beans and legumes. Fine. But you, you can still, you know, adhere to or, or strive to meet some of these other uh, quantitative objectives and it will probably be fairly compatible with some nice health outcomes, you know? So you don't have to, to buy the whole list or sell the whole list, but it is a set of criteria that broadly nudge people towards some pretty, uh, pretty health compatible eating patterns. So broadly speaking, what we're looking at here, when you start to just condense it uh, more qualitatively is plenty of fiber, which broadly speaking seems to be a really solid thing for, for a variety of health outcomes. Um, what I would call a a suitable intake of both potassium and sodium. Uh, And and this is one of those things that if you're like, listen, I don't think I'm particularly sensitive to sodium in the diet. I don't want to worry that much about potassium and sodium, you know, either their absolute amounts or their relative amounts compared to one another. For those folks, I'd say at bare minimum, just keep an eye on your blood pressure. You know, if you start noticing that you're getting into the prehypertension or even hypertension range, of course, I'm not a doctor, you know, so this isn't medical advice. But if I started to see my blood pressure going up, I'd go and chat with a doctor and say, what's going on here? And they might say, hey, why don't you try limiting sodium and see what happens? You know, there, there might be a variety of different routes you can take there. So uh, if you're someone who doesn't want to get really particular about potassium and sodium, I totally get that. I know a lot of natural bodybuilders who they're like, hey, I just noticed that I eat seven grams of sodium per day. Is that bad? And that's kind of high, but I mean, you know, their blood pressure is in a normal range. They're, they're not having any adverse cardiometabolic indices uh, that, that can really be observed and they're keeping an eye on those things. And it's like, well, then I don't know, do what you want to do. Yeah. That, that's kind of the boat I'm in. I, I'm at, uh, pro- yeah, probably like six, seven grams of sodium a day. Yeah. But it, like you're, like you're describing, um, the issue I have, if anything is getting hypotensive, mm-hmm. um, and even even when I was up near 280, uh, blood pressure was like 110 over 70, and it's it's lower now, which is unfortunate. Yeah, um, that's crazy. That's really low. Yeah. Sometimes stand up and ooh, get all woozy, but eh. yeah, but yeah. So, uh, but yeah, if, if I was if my blood pressure was like 140 over 90 or something, um, then I certainly would cut back. Yeah. Or, or at least, you know, get with a doctor and say, what do you, what do you recommend as a first line of action here? And I, I expect they probably would say, let's look at probably sodium, if not both sodium and potassium, and just try to get those in a, in a more, more, uh, comfortable balance based on what your blood pressure is telling you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the broad strokes here, high fiber, a suitable potassium to sodium intake, um, Usually blood pressure is going to help you kind of figure out if that needs to be acted upon. Plenty of fruits and vegetables. Um, you want to minimize processed meats and charred meats. You know, you, you don't, uh, eating charred meat that, um, you know, there, there have been some studies saying, yeah, maybe not ideal for gastric cancers. Um, red meat in moderation. You know, I'm certainly not saying that, you know, people should eat zero red meat, but broadly speaking, when you look at the, at the literature, it generally tends and it trends in the direction of, of saying, eh, maybe in moderation, you know, 
uh, the, the, the long-term health outcome literature, for example, for like fish and poultry seems to be a little bit more favorable than it is for red meat, especially fatty cuts of red meat. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to eat enough protein to support lean body mass, of course, which doesn't necessarily take all that much as we've talked about previously. Um, uh, maintaining a, a reasonably high ratio of polyunsaturated to saturated fatty acids seems to do pretty well in the literature. I know a lot of people uh, have essentially built their entire personality around uh, fighting that recommendation. Like if you were to go out and say, hey, like polyunsaturated fats, pretty good. Saturated fat might want to limit. Some people will just absolutely lose it when, when that comes up. But I mean, the literature isn't really that hard to parse with those outcomes. It it looks pretty, pretty straightforward. Like, I, I wouldn't say like, yeah, I mean, there there have been both observational uh, lines of evidence and randomized controlled trials where managing that ratio of polyunsaturated to saturated fatty acid, preferably nudging it toward the higher range, seems to be pretty good for blood lipids and cardiometabolic outcomes. Uh Total fat intake, you know, not too low, not too high. That that's where a lot of the research generally nudges you toward. And then saturated fatty a- saturated fatty acids, capping those at less than ten percent of total energy. Broadly spe- speaking, seems to be pretty compatible with the, with the research. Um, you have something to say? I I do. Just just yeah. one one thing to point out that I find kind of funny. Um, so you you mentioned uh, people who who just like really push back against the polyunsaturated to saturated fat uh, stuff. And also just just people in general who have uh, fringe nutrition ideas that are very much not supported by by the literature. Um, like w- one thing to note uh, that I, I think most listeners are probably aware of is that a lot of the research in nutrition, um, specifically for long for long-term health outcomes comes from either like either like observational epidemiological studies or like cohort studies. There aren't, you know, there aren't that many like 30, 40 year RCTs where you say, I don't know if there are any, but yeah, like it's not like there are a ton of studies where you say like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to have one group eat low saturated fat, one group eat high saturated fat for the next 30 years and just observe the outcomes. And like, they're definitely going to stick to that. Um, because yeah, like that's that's not how how humans eat. Um, like people aren't going to want to sign up for a study where researchers are controlling their diet for the next three decades. So uh, people with with vet- very heterodox uh, nutritional ideas will point to the research that does exist and be like, "Ooh, you're making the classic blunder. Um, you're drawing causal inferences from observational research, uh, which that part in in a vacuum is is a fair critique." And then they'll take the next step and say, and in fact, these things that healthy people seem to do, it is actually bad for their health, but because people are telling them they're healthy, like they're doing these things, but also like a lot of other healthy behaviors. And so ultimately you're dealing with, with a case of healthy user bias, um, where it looks like the things I'm promoting are associated with bad health outcomes, looks like the things uh, the World Health Organization, uh, uh, like the EU, similar body, like similar body in the U.S. Like it seems like all of the things they're promoting are associated with good health outcomes. But you know what? Turns out 
you can't believe any of that stuff because it's all just observational research and uh actually you should just only live on a diet of raw red meat yeah but the the thing is then they'll they'll come back with claims of like and guess what carbs they'll kill you uh all seed oils and things with uh high levels of omega-6s they're poison they'll kill you vegetables guess what they'll also kill you but it's like i have a hard time understanding how you square that with the critique of observational research and healthy user bias because the thing is if those things are so bad you still have to contend with the fact that the folks who do who eat that way still do have generally positive health outcomes like right it there there is an upward constraint on how bad and poisonous those things can be you know like, yeah in, unless you're contending that like if those people were just eating the way i told them they would live to maybe 150 years old yeah you yeah. know like yeah it, it is so someone tried to like drag me into a debate uh which is always the best way to do it uh just a online debate where two very confident people yell over each other and cannot fact check each other in real time that's always the best uh so i was like hey you should debate this person and i said well we have such um severe gaps uh such a, a mismatch in terms of the way we view epistemology just what levels of evidence we find to be convincing and compelling and like we we can't even agree on like broadly speaking what is the hierarchy of evidence for nutrition and what counts as very credible nutrition evidence and based on that there would be no utility of doing a debate uh and 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 it was it's kind of like hey let's play this sport um but we absolutely will not agree upon the rules before the match yeah we'll just go into it you'll be playing one sport i'll be playing a fully different version and we'll just like kind of figure out how it went after the fact yeah um but yeah i mean there there's so many instances where you'll see people saying yeah i mean sure there's all this evidence that that shows that at bare minimum all these things are are really really compatible with with great health and, 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 you know, excellent long-term health outcomes. Um, but I want to throw that out because have you seen this in vitro research, you know, or I eat very differently and sure enough, I am right here and alive. So how do you explain that? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's just like, there's just this general rejection of, you know, really high quality epidemiological research and nutrition. Um, it, rejection you know well the rcts are too short the the epidemiological stuff is too observational the cohort stuff eh, they didn't really control it that well even though it was uh uh, you know a a cohort-based intervention over several decades so like let's just bring it back to the petri dishes and just assume that i can learn more from a, a mouse with fundamentally different metabolic characteristics than i can from twenty thousand humans who were involved in a a prospective cohort intervention. Yeah. Um, I don't know what to do with that. So like, I I'm certain that there are going to be a lot of folks that, that hear this segment and say, uh, this Trexler guy's an idiot because has he seen this mouse study and ignored all the relevant human evidence? And yeah, there's some of these battles that just really can't be won in the short term. And, uh, 
it is what it is. But uh, now that we've discussed some of these broad strokes, um, kind of basic eating patterns and, and kind of guidelines that seem to be most compatible with the current evidence, inevitably people are going to say, yeah, but give me a diet. Give me a named diet that works and is better than the rest. I don't want to do that, but I will say there there are multiple named diets that generally check off uh, plenty of these boxes, right? So a couple that come to mind, this isn't the whole list, but two that come to mind, I think the DASH diet tends to be a pretty sensible diet. I think if you don't have hypertension, there might be some constraints in there that are not fully applicable to you. Um, so I'm not saying it's the perfect diet for all people, but the DASH diet tends to do pretty well. Uh, the Mediterranean diet tends to do pretty well. I know a lot of people then come in and argue very aggressively about what the Mediterranean diet truly is. Um, I'm just going off of the intervention studies and the set of characteristics that have broadly been embraced in the literature to this point. Uh, so, for example, uh, stuff you eat on the Mediterranean diet Plenty of whole grains, legumes, fruits, vegetables, healthy fats, herbs, and spices. I read that quote from uh, an image here before people just absolutely tear me apart for using the term healthy fats. But broadly speaking, they're talking about fats that have a lot of unsaturated fatty acids and relatively low saturated fatty acid content. Uh, the stuff that is, you know, still pretty heavily emphasized, but not quite as much as the others. We've got fish other seafood and foods that are rich in omega-3 fatty acids, uh, poultry, eggs, and dairy, still part of the diet, but not not quite as, as highly emphasized. And then things that you would eat sparingly would be things like red meats and, you know, sweets with a lot of added sugar. When we look at the DASH diet, again, plenty of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, uh, low-ish low fat dairy products, fish, poultry, beans, nuts, seeds, vegetable oil, stuff like that. Things that you would limit on a DASH diet or, or that kind of eating pattern would be fatty meats, uh, full-fat dairy, sugar-sweetened beverages, sweets, and you know really high added sodium intake. Um, you know, people again are gonna go nuts and say, "Well, there, here's this study on full-fat dairy that says it's fine." I'm not saying that these eating patterns are. I'm not saying that every guideline in here is fully necessary for every single individual. Um, but these are a couple dietary patterns that, broadly speaking, are pretty compatible with those broad guidelines from the two uh, the two healthy diet indicator sets of criteria that I mentioned previously. Yeah, ju just saying, like if if you're very insistent about having a named diet, yeah, these these seem to be pretty good. Yeah, they seem to be pretty good. But most importantly, the the, the key point here is that these are not the only two options. There are plenty of cuisines around the world that are very much compatible with these broad sets of eating patterns and eating behavior. So like, I know one thing a lot of people say is that some of these, um, some of these named diets often tend to be used in a way that kind of excludes major portions of the world. You know, it just kind of recommends like, particular food items and like you know sometimes you'll see like here's a sample meal pattern and you'll find that it is it's very um it's not very compat compatible with different cuisines around the world uh and, and just you know different um you know spices and food sources you know they, they tend to get very regionalized and say okay everyone in the world 
ignore your cultural traditions and eat just this set of foods, right? Um, and that's not necessary. There's plenty of cuisines around the entire world that could be uh, fully compatible with these types of, of, of eating patterns uh, with, you know, just little modifications and, and little um, bits of effort here and there to incorporate certain food items. So, um, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, everyone has to eat these two named diets. These are two that come to mind that are pretty well studied, that check a lot of the boxes. But, I mean, I, I've been eating a lot of different, uh, you know, a, as I've kind of transitioned into a more plant-based eating pattern, I've been eating a lot more Asian cuisines. I've been eating a lot of Chinese food, Thai food, Vietnamese food, Indian food. Um, and, yeah, man, it's great. But but it is kind of kind of eye-opening. I used to... I used to eat essentially just shredded chicken for every meal and like just nor yeah, just eating like kind of the, the very generic sets of vegetables that come in the American supermarket. And to me, I'm like eating all these foods. I'm like, I've never heard of this in my life, but, but they still broadly allow you to check a lot of these boxes, you know? Yeah. You, you seem to be very tickled and I don't know why. No, d two things. One, just you, your, your mention of, uh, eating a, a broader variety of foods, one of my favorite Eric interactions of all time was uh, one time when, when you came over to work and you just had this gleam in your eye. You said, Greg, have you heard about cumin? <laughs> that was that was one of one of the better starts to a work day I've ever had. I, I came in like I um, was like a music insider with my ear to the ground. It was like, dude, something just dropped. Yeah. Like, cumin is out. And and. It, <laughs> have you heard of this did you know it was coming like yeah it'd be like if somebody dropped a new album and i was the first person that heard yeah 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 uh, so that that was uh th that was my first my first thought the first thing i found a little amusing second thing uh mentioning that you've been eating eating more uh asian cuisine uh more like chinese food more indian food etc uh this is this is um slightly tangential to health not exactly what you're talking about but since we're since this is somewhat a segment about uh uh difficult to defend health claims that people make online uh one of the one of the ones that just it, at its most basic level i find uh quite quite humorous um is people claiming that like vegetarian and vegan diets uh, in particularly diets high in soy and low in uh, animal products, animal fats are just like catastrophically bad for reproductive function. Because like, <laughs> look, look, when, when look you, at the scoreboard. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if if you just if you just pull up a list of of where are there a lot of people? Where does it appear that people have been really successfully procreating and what do they eat yeah um you know i think that uh that is observational evidence if someone <laughs> wants to throw that back at me i'll take it on the chin but but like come on but again the, the come on the claim that you're making is this eating pattern tanks fertility like, right yeah ob it doesn't take that much observational <laughs> research to at very at the very least nullify that claim correct like yeah if you're telling me this dietary pattern is incompatible with fertility <laughs> it i don't have to clear a high bar <laughs> to, to disprove that yeah um 
Yeah, so so wrapping things up here, uh, and the reason I bring up the different cuisines though is I know there's been a movement within the uh, the dietetics profession to just be a little bit more culturally inclusive mm-hmm. because what they kind of observed like in American dietetics is that everyone was coming in and a, a lot of diet. I'm, this isn't a knock on dietitians because they identified that this was a practice that needed updating. But people were coming in from all different cultural backgrounds with all different cooking experiences and cuisines. And everyone was just being sent home with like, have you tried white potatoes, broccoli and chicken breast? And they're like, I don't eat this shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, This is not I've never known people that eat this. like this is not how I eat. Like, can you meet me not halfway? Can you meet me an eighth of the way in the middle here? And, and so, like, it is important to kind of just acknowledge that very, very different cultural traditions and, and cuisines and things like that, they can all be incorporated in a way that that meets some of these broad criteria. Yeah. Um, you know, people will... <laughs> I can already see comments coming in. Thank God, as we've covered in previous episodes, I don't read them. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, ah, but what about seed oils being catastrophic? That's an unsupported claim. It, it just is. Uh, what about gluten causing all sorts of problems for people who don't have celiac disease or sensitivity, if broadly speaking, to like high FODMAP foods? Again, it's it's an unsupported kind of line of inquiry that people have taken, mostly to sell books. Uh, what about carbs being the root of all cardiometabolic problems? They're just not. Um, it, it's not hard to disprove that in a pretty convincing way. Uh well, Eric, you don't talk about biohacking and fasts and things like that. There's a reason for that because it's unsupported. Uh, we're we're just looking at the distilling from decades and decades of nutritional science. What are the things we feel like we can really hang our hat on here? Um, what about plants being poisonous? Not going to entertain it. It, it. It's a silly idea. Uh, if you really want to make the claim that eating vegetables is a potently deleterious act, you have no value for research and and therefore like that conversation is a non-starter because i'm going to lean on the research of actual health outcomes in humans and if you really think that eating vegetables is a severe hazard to human health i i truly don't know what to tell you yeah uh and again the the idea that for example all animal-based protein being unhealthy that also is an unsupported thing. And I, I, I'm saying that as, as a vegan, you know, like I, I'm trying to play it just by the book here, looking at the literature. I don't currently eat any animal-based proteins, but I don't have to go around and say, well, actually, they're absolutely catastrophic to your health just to make myself feel better. Um, you know, like I said, there is some evidence to say, yeah, it might be worthwhile to limit certainly processed meats. And then, you know, maybe also like fatty red meat in moderation, right? But the, the literature pertaining to poultry and fish is excellent, you know, and, and I don't have to justify my own biases by making untrue, unsupported health claims, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just be careful out there, folks. There's a lot of stuff in nutrition, a lot of different dietary kind of pockets out there of really, uh, really enthusiastic proponents who want you, for some reason, to throw out decades and decades and decades of incremental scientific progress. And I would, at the at the bare minimum, just encourage you to resist that urge to, uh, like I said, that, that example with the maze, 
maybe hesitate before saying, yeah, let me, take me back to the start and I'll just try a totally different path and forget everything I learned along the way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do we know everything with nutritional science? Of course not. You know, we, we don't have enough. We, we don't have a fully complete picture. We cannot draw up this and say this is the optimal single human diet. Like I've said previously, I don't think that even exists. I, I think that's a bit of a fool's errand. Um, but the stuff isn't that complicated to the extent that you, that you should say, well, is it possible that we truly don't know a single thing about human nutrition? Uh, so people will try to overcomplicate and, you know, misattribute blame to certain nutritional components. They're largely doing that to just open up a little space, uh, a space kind of create a niche for whatever angle they're trying to take. Um, but what I would encourage people to do is just focus on broad eating patterns Try not to focus on demonizing individual nutrients or individual food sources. And when we look at the broad eating patterns that are compatible uh, with, you know, supporting health, longevity, etc., we are starting to work our way toward a nice, uh, concise little list of, of patterns and behaviors that seem to be very compatible with a healthy diet. Yeah. One one thing I guess that I would add is I so I have um I have nothing but disdain for most of the people who uh who who put forth and promote uh a, a lot of these pr pretty uh, pretty unjustifiable um pr perspectives on nutrition. But I I will say that that I and and I assume both of us have uh quite a bit of of empathy and understanding for people who would get sucked in by a lot of that yeah um i think that there's you know i think it it makes sense to look around and say uh especially in in america uh which is where around half of our audience is located and i mean a a pretty disproportionate chunk of the most out there nutrition folks are are american and i i uh i, I think there's probably a reason for that but i i think it's it's easy to look around and say well you know there's science seems to have improved our lives in so many ways and like advanced so much like you know people aren't dying from communicable diseases at, at nearly the rates they were a long time ago. Um, like a lot of, of medication has improved, like treatment of heart disease uh, has gotten way, way better. Like that kills way fewer people than it used to. Um, cancer treatment seems to be improving on the tech side of things, you know, compare computers today to computers 30 years ago. seems like there's so much progress being made. Um, but it seems like in spite of a lot of external markers of progress, um, just the general health of a lot of people uh, seems to be kind of trending down or, yeah, I mean, like you, you look around and there's, there's a lot of, of very unhealthy people out there. Um, and it, it doesn't seem to comport particularly well with the advances we've seen in, in other things. And I think it's easy to look at that and then look at, um, you know, some of the some of the worst excesses of 
the industrialization of food production, uh, all of like the the hyper palatable, hyper processed foods on the shelves, um, and just kind of kind of find yourself in a position where it feels like uh, it feels like something is just is just wrong with with food. Like there it, there has to be something amiss for us to find ourselves in the position we're in. Um, you know, given the, the broader, uh, progress we're seeing in, in basically all other domains. So like what, what's going on there? And so I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that a lot of that is like very multifactorial. Um, but I, I think that like single factor thinking is very seductive because it, it can give you, it can give you a sense of control and it can give you a feeling that, Hey, if I can just like control and manage this one thing, like I can, I can take control of my life, get everything back on track. Um, like it's, it's an, it's a easier narrative than trying to look at like all of the different underlying causes of things going on. And the solution also presents itself as being easier than, you know, like, Hey, let let's completely redesign American cities so that you can walk and cycle more and be more active and you know maybe be a little healthier for for that reason. Like, let's uh, try to transition away from fossil fuels so air quality is better. So I, if you have asthma, you can go outside without hacking up a lung. Like you know, like though though like big structural problems are more challenging to tackle. And I <laughs> I think that by and large like the American political system has, has proven itself to have little appetite for tackling a lot of those things. And so, um, I don't know the, like all of it can just make you feel like you're, you're going crazy and just lose losing control of your life. And uh, when you find yourself in a situation like that, a silver bullet type solution that at least like purports to have really vast and powerful explanatory power starts being very appealing and seductive. Um, and so like, I, I absolutely understand how consumers of that information kind of get sucked down those rabbit holes and, and find it, uh, convincing or, or at least alluring and enticing. Um, so I, I have a, a ton, a ton of empathy for, for folks who, who find themselves in those content spaces. But, um, yeah, I I just encourage you to uh I don't know, just just take a step back and and look at things a little bit more critically. Yeah, I know I I totally echo that. Uh I think it's very understandable to be in a position where you're ready to embrace some of those ideas and uh I think it's really easy nowadays to be exposed to those ideas in a way that's very very convincing and compelling. Um, which I, I understand, but also just generally view to be unfortunate, you know, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I, I, I certainly don't fault anyone for getting drawn into some of those narratives. Um, and like one of the things that always comes up along those lines, like you're kind of getting at this with what you're saying, but like, I've seen so many people on the internet who it's like, they have embraced uh, a pretty compa- compelling sales pitch for some very heterodox, like very fringe nutrition idea. 
And their response to it is, you know, if you say, well, like, look at these guidelines that are pretty broadly embraced by like every major health focused organization across the world. It's not like one government is just kind of setting the rules here. You know, if you bring up that kind of argument, a lot of times it'll be like, oh, yeah, great. That goes into the dietary guidelines. And look, look how far they've gotten us, like like the U.S. government dietary guidelines. Yes. And, And to that, I will also I will often say. Who do you know who doesn't, I'm not, I'm not talking about adherence. Who do you know who can currently state the government dietary guidelines? Almost no one in the general population even knows what they are, yeah. aside from just general vibes, which is vegetables are nice uh, and don't eat as many desserts. Like that's pretty much the extent to which the, the general population knows the u.s dietary guidelines and then ask yourself of the people who know them who applies them right and so like the idea that you can say well here's the guidelines here's the population level outcomes looks like the guidelines aren't working i mean that doesn't it kind of implies or assumes that people are actually following those guidelines and all of the empirical evidence would tell us that they're not correct you know so that feeds into a lot of that conspiratorial thinking of like you had your chance to set the guidelines and look how far it's gotten us well the act of setting a nutritional guideline is not really the helpful part it's the adherence to a set of dietary habits and behaviors and you can make the argument that perhaps maybe there would be some utility in reframing these various eating patterns in a way that would make adherence more likely. I think that's a very strong case you could make, but the idea that because obesity rates are high or, you know, heart disease, type two diabetes, whatever outcome you want to focus on, because those are high necessarily, the guidelines are flawed that, that if you just interrogate that argument in and of itself, it doesn't hold up. It it, it fully breaks down. Um, so yeah, I, I echo your sentiment. Like I, I think it's unfortunate that folks are making these very superficial arguments that draw people in. I, I think it's unfortunate that some of those arguments on the surface level do, do seem to be quite compelling. And ultimately I have a lot of empathy for people who are being led down a road that is ultimately somewhat deleterious to their health. Um, and without really knowing it or, or signing up for that, you know? Yeah. And then one other thing I just want to reiterate, there's going to be folks who are like, Hey, my dietary pattern that I prefer doesn't really, uh, mix well with, with all of these criteria. That's completely fine. Like I, I have no, like no interest at all in trying to dictate how people eat. Um, I just try to put out information that seems most compatible with the evidence. Like there's going to be people who are, really healthy who say, Eric, I'm on a ketogenic diet and I'm, you know, deviating from several of these items, but I love the way I eat. And all of my metrics right now would indicate that I'm in good health. If you expect me to be upset about that, you fundamentally misunderstand my incentives. I don't want people (laughs) to be in poor health. So if you're in great health and not adhering to all these guidelines, I am genuinely happy for you. Uh, but the purpose of guidelines is to say, okay, if we put 30 million people on a diet and we had to kind of give them some check, some boxes that they should strive toward checking, these are the broad brush strokes, you know, the, the general guidelines that they ought to be aiming for based on the evidence. 
that does not preclude in any way the possibility that there are people who deviate from these regularly and are experiencing really good health at the moment. So um, that that's not the intention. I know a lot of smart folks who are on you know ketogenic diets that don't check all of these boxes, but are still really well formulated diets. You know, like uh, I think a lot of people assume that if you're on a ketogenic diet, you basically just eat like uh, Philly cheese sandwiches without the bread all day. And that's like all you eat, right? Uh, just beef and cheese and, and, and that's it. Um, I know a lot of folks who are, you know, on ketogenic diets, they eat a lot of fibrous vegetables. They have some nuts and seeds in the mix. Like they actually do check more of these boxes than you might think. So, so I don't want this to be the type of thing that, uh, becomes like a diet wars. Like I don't want to put gasoline on that flame and fuel more of it. Um, but what I would encourage people to do is if you have a dietary pattern that you really like, but perhaps you are unsatisfied with your current health status, or you have some concerns about, um, you know, your current diet's compatibility with some of these guidelines, you don't necessarily have to overhaul every behavior in your life and immediately start from scratch. You might just consider saying, okay, I'm going to work toward getting a couple of these, uh, additional guidelines met within the broad uh, eating pattern that I currently have. Okay, so the purpose here is to be helpful uh, and to lead people toward evidence-based guidelines, not to disparage any particular dietary strategy or to make people uh, angry because their preferred method of dieting doesn't, you know, check every box. All right, so I think that does it for this episode. Uh, We went a lot longer than normal, but that's okay. No big deal. How, How far are we here? Uh, about, about two hours, 40 minutes. Ooh. Yeah. That's more than I expected. That's okay though. Uh, yeah. That's fine. Um, that, that, that's what the audience likes. We're, we're the only two people in this entire equation who actually want the episodes to be shorter. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, Hey, <laughs> there you go. You're welcome everybody. Uh, so ho- hopefully people get some helpful stuff out of this. This is one of those episodes that isn't like walking through like 30 individual studies but is more just uh pretty applied i would say pretty applied so uh hopefully this has been helpful as always we sincerely appreciate everyone for checking this episode out um and we will be back in about a week with another episode thank you for listening to the stronger by science podcast if you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.